It's time to rumble! It's time for the Royal Rumble, where it's every man for himself. The 30 participants include the Ultimate Warrior, the Hulky Talk Man, the Macho King Randy Savage, Rowdy Roddy Piper, Andre the Giant, Superfly Jimmy Stucker, Bad News Brown, Shawn Michaels, Haku, and Demolition Axe, along with the model Rick Martel, Coco Beware, the Hitman Bret Hart, the Warlord, the Mighty Hercules, Ravishing Rick Rude, Marty Jannetty, Mr. Perfect, Demolition Smash, Jake the Snake Roberts, Jim the Anvil Nightheart, The Barbarian, Dusty Rhodes the American Dream, Tito Santana, Akeem, The Red Rooster, The Earthquake, The Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, Dino Bravo, Beefcake takes on the genius. Rugged Roddy Garvin faces Greg the Hammer Valentine. And the Bushwhackers meet the fabulous Rubio Brothers in tag action. Plus, Brother Love's individual guest, Sapphire, and sensational Queen Sherry. We're ready to rumble. We're ready for the Royal Rumble. I, I love Mason Paku. Uh, still occasionally wrestles. He comes and beats people up for Bullet Club when Tamatonga and Tangaloa really need someone to come beat people up because he's our coup and that's where he does. That is the definition of why I've always hated Power Rangers. <laughs> now, let me, now let me explain that because that probably makes no sense. <laughs> Carry on. Sorry, I'm intrigued now. So basically what you've said is that there is two sons basically that when they really need someone to like basically help them they go and get haku and you're like well you could have just got haku from the start he'd have beaten everybody for you you didn't need to just <laughs> bring him out for special occasions this is what the power rangers used to do and so did the bad guys in power rangers every single time so basically you'd have the power rangers they'd be facing one of rita repulsa's monsters right she'd send down one of the monsters at a time and they would like lose eventually to the power rangers so what would happen next time is that then the Power Rangers would come up against someone slightly better. And you're like, well, you could have just sent both monsters down at the same time and they would have, the Power Rangers have had no chance. But no, you just sent one at a time. Then she finally finds a monster that's good enough to beat the Power Rangers. And suddenly the Power Rangers have got this extra special super duper Megatron thing that they bring out. And you're like, why didn't you just bring that out in the first place? This is ridiculous. This is such a shit show. I've always hated Power Rangers. And that is why. Fair enough. I mean, you do have to persuade Haku off the golf course, which you don't have to do with, like, a mega monster. That's true. They're, they're just there. And yeah. if Haku's not playing golf, then he'll come and help his lads out. I mean, I, I've just got to pick my jaw up off the floor a bit, isn't it? <laughs> just trying, <laughs> from the fact that you just insulted one of my favourite childhood television programmes. But this is the other thing I don't get, right? Because my memory is that Power Rangers first came out in like the mid 90s like maybe 94 even 95 and yet people your age Matt seem to love the fucking thing and I was like when I was like 10 or whatever I was like this is shit I, I hated it then like I genuinely thought it was terrible then 
and and I've ne- and and ever since then, there's people your age, like even now at, at your age now, like oh yeah, I love, yeah. I love Power Rangers. It's fucking shit, mate. It's fucking shit. <laughs> See, you know, it's funny you mention that because one of my favorite birthday presents I've ever had was a Power Rangers sword that I remember. All I wanted was this sword that the White Ranger had, and when you turned it upside down, it was like a talking mouth on it at the end, and he just, you know, he, he talks to about it, and it was the coolest sword ever. And I finally had it for my birthday as a kid. Until this day, it's one of the best friends I've ever had. The coolest sword ever. This guy clearly never had a Thundercat sword, did he? Fucking hell. <laughs> right. Hello, hello, hello. This is the Random Wrestling Review. I'm Ben Spindler and today Royal Rumble season officially begins and the wrestling world rejoices as let's be honest the Rumble is where the Venn diagram of wrestling fandom comes closest to resembling a perfect circle. And for the first time ever I am not joined by old man Sam Carey or Tom Smith but we have lined up a heavyweight clash of the titans to step up into their places this week. Firstly we have James Truepenny back once again. Hello James. Hello, Ben. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm good, thank you. And also, diametrically opposed to James, we have Matt Roberts. Matt, how are you? I'm good. How about yourself? Very good. Good to have you uh, both back on the show. This is each of your third appearance on the Random yes. Wrestling Review. So that, that works out really well. Now, um, one thing we've got to do today is address, as what I said in that little introduction, which is that you guys are diametrically opposed. So... I uh, we I wanted to just check this because I did get this feeling before uh, the show. But from my understanding, you guys have never spoken to each other before in person, and yet you disagree on every single thing going when it comes to wrestling, at least. James, tell me tell me the origin of this. We both have reviewed things for various websites down the years, and as I've read Matthew's stuff, because I like his stuff, just because I don't agree with it doesn't mean I don't think he's a good writer. I have noticed that my stuff and his stuff seems to be yards apart, and I think possibly Matthew maybe enjoys characters and story a bit more, and I'm kind of more of a big match kind of guy, and that's what I like. Would you agree with that, Matthew? I suppose that's fair. I mean, you definitely make a good point. I mean, you know, pretty much spot on over the last couple of years. You know, we've both sort of, you know, tweeted back and forth, and it does seem to be the same sort of thing. And and just for people to understand out there, you can disagree with people and still get on. You know, it's it's amazing. It does happen. And that's pretty much been the case of what's happened over the last couple of years on Twitter, I think. Well, I'm going to put to the test the idea that you can disagree and still get on today. I've decided to do a little bit of a test, a little bit of fun thing. So what we're going to do is we're going to play a little bit of a game. Not the game, just a a game of some kind. So basically what it is, is uh, an either or or game. I'm going to give you 10 things. And you have to say the first thing that comes out of your head, which would you prefer most? So I'm going to give you... Two options are going to go this or this, and then you're going to have to say which one you want to select. What I'm going to do is I'm not going to allow you to hear the other person's answers. So what I'm going to do, um, James, if you would if you would dial off for just a minute, I will text you and, and get you back. But I'm going to do it with Matt first, then we'll bring you back, and then I'll do it with you, and we'll see what the uh, answers come out to. Okay, see you soon. <laughs> right, Matt. So are you ready? I'm good. I'm good to go. Good, okay, got 10 questions. Here we go. 
So, WWE or WCW? Oh, WWE. Okay, the, the answer's got to be much faster than this. The Rock or Steve Austin? The Rock. Uh, WrestleMania or Wrestle Kingdom? WrestleMania. John Cena or Batista? Batista. Bobby Heenan or Paul Heyman? Paul Heyman. Stratus or Lita? Tristratus. Brian Danielson or CM Punk? <sighs> Brian Danielson. Ladder match or cage match? Ladder match. Kilo Brown or Val Venus? Kilo Brown. Vince McMahon or Eric Bischoff? Vince McMahon. It's a tough one, that last one, I think. It's a real tough one. But uh, well done. Mostly ones. I don't know what that says about your character. This isn't like a cosmopolitan type uh, thing. But I will, uh, I'll will. i bring James back and, and we will uh, we'll see what he does as well. I can guarantee how this is going to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're, so we're, putting it, we're putting it to the test. Um, so good to have you back, James. Now, um, Matt's done his. So we're going to give you the same 10 and we're going to see how they come out in comparison to uh to man give me one second because i've just got a, I, I meant to put this in a spreadsheet before we came on air and then i had to i had to walk the dog really quickly so that that went out the window. um and so uh yeah same 10 questions starting with wwe or wcw wcw the rock or steve austin steve austin WrestleMania or Wrestle Kingdom? Wrestle Kingdom. <laughs> Cena or Batista? Ooh. Uh, Cena. Bobby Heenan or Paul Heyman? Uh, hey. Heyman. <laughs> Heyman. 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 <laughs> Tristratus or Lita? Lita. And Brian Danielson or CM Punk? Oh, God. Danielson. Uh, ladder match or cage match? Uh, ladder match. Lou Brown or Val Venus? Lou Brown. And Vincent Mann or Eric Bischoff? <laughs> oh, Satan or Satan? Fish off by a nose. Okay, there, no, fair enough. I did say to Matt that last one is definitely the hardest. I don't think anyone yeah. would, would easily answer that one. I mean, I'm going to be honest, you've got mostly different. So <laughs> <laughs> you both went different on the first one, WWE or WCW. Uh, you both went different on The Rock or Austin. You both went different on WrestleMania or Wrestle Kingdom. John Cena or Batista was different. Both of you went for Paul Heyman. So that was uh, one point of uh, agreement. Yeah. You went either way for Tristratus or Lita. You went both for Brian Danielson, which is uh, yeah. good to have. 
And then things start to get, yeah, things start to get a little bit more uh, uniform. So we had both of you said ladder match. Both of you said D'Lo Brown. Sorry, old man, but, you know, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. And... <laughs> You, uh, but you did disagree. Vincent Mann, Matt said Vincent Mann, and you said Eric Bischoff. So there we go. There is definitely di- a diametric opposement. That's not yep. words. They're not words that go together. <laughs> but fuck it, we're going with it anyway. Um, yeah. So that, that was quite fun. I enjoyed that. I wanted to see if it really did bear out, and it kind of did. Yeah, definitely, kind of did. Yeah. Cool. So today we're going to be covering Royal Rumble 1990. So I guess well, it's time to get our expectations like we always do. Starting, let's start with you, Matt. What were your expectations for the show? Had you seen this before? Never have. And believe it or not, the uh, this Rumble was the year that I was born. Wow. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I was quite looking forward to this one. And it, it was okay. I mean, expectation-wise, you know, I'm just thinking we'll see how it goes. And, and, and it was fine. He's, he's putting the cart before the horse, though. He's telling us well, how good it was as well. I only asked for the <laughs> expectations, Matt. I didn't want your overall review at this point, all right? <laughs> James, what about yourself? Well, this was the very first WWE pay-per-view I saw as a pay-per-view at the time. My dad and me and my mum were big wrestling fans, and we were quite obviously at this point in time starved of wrestling entertainment. Uh, my dad was a taxi driver, and one of our customers had Sky, and they videotaped the Royal Rumble because they were wrestling fans too. So this was the first in the time, like not off a video I'd bought or rented pay-per-view that I saw at at the time, like a couple of days later. So my expectations through my rose-tinted glasses of the past were quite high, and I'll leave it at that. Now, um, it's interesting there, James. You you come from a relatively small town. Is that that fair to say? Yes. Yeah, I was going to say that I don't imagine there are many people from where, you know, the people who started this podcast are from who have taxi drivers where they have customers that are familiar enough that they would get videotapes of, of wrestling shows from them it's it's lincolnshire we do things differently here you know not obviously about my father but i've heard some stories of uh, taxi drivers in lincolnshire doing interesting side jobs shall we say mm. and other and other uh, employments that one would not associate with things that are nefarious but we'll leave it there you're lucky that old man or Tom's not on because they would have had a field day with that. Unfortunately, <laughs> I, I haven't got that kind of material in me, so um, we, we won't be going there. Before we um, jump into the show, I will give my expectations in just a second. But um, uh, just a quick plug for all your social media needs for this show. They can be found at RWR Pod UK on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook. Please give us a follow if you have not done already to keep up to date with what is going on on the pod, as well as getting any insight into the various hosts between the episodes and what they do during that period. And most of the time, uh, as happened just recently, Tom decided out of nowhere, he hasn't touched the Twitter account for months and months, decided to post a picture of us from 10 years ago where we're pulling a very silly pose outside of the Santiago Bernabeu. Uh, stadium in in Madrid so um, yeah I don't I don't know what that's about but anyway that's the kind of thing you can get on uh, on those channels so my expectations I have seen this a a number of times before and I think there's one match on air which I was very much looking forward to seeing again uh, one one of the matches before the rumble I should say and then the rumble itself I was expecting to be pretty good I was expecting pretty good my memory was that it was a pretty good rumble but I wasn't certain and I was also wary that that might be based on one single moment in the match itself and it might not be the moment you're thinking of so that should be something to look forward to now what we're going to do today we've been we've had a slightly new format this year so far which is to kind of pick things out that we want to talk about first each 
each make a pick and then talk about that first, concentrate on that in the first half, and then do the rest of the show in the second half. What we're going to do this week, because there's only really one talking point, and that is the Rumble match itself, I figure we will run through the Rumble as a full-on review for the whole of the Rumble match itself in the first half. And if that's long enough, that will be all that we do in the first half, and then we'll do the rest of the show in the second. I'm going to basically give you the entrance, the first two entrants. I'll summarise what happened. Sometimes there'll be absolutely no summary because nothing of note will have happened. <laughs> and then I'll, I'll throw to you guys and then we'll talk about what happened. And if there's any comments you want to make, you can make them. And then I'll tell, talk about the, the next entrant and then so on. First entrant in the Royal Rumble is Ted DiBiase. And he is closely followed by Koku Beware as the second entrant. Now, we find out prior to the match that Ted DiBiase was going to be the first entrant. So this was a very much a prelude to WWE giving away the surprises for their Royal Rumble before the match, um, which is uh, very in vogue this year's Rumble from what I've been able, been able to see already. There have been some predictions or have been some announcements for surprises that will take place in the Rumble. We have DiBiase immediately in control. Um, Coco hits back after they do the hard head spot, where it's apparently Coco's just got a hard a hard head for some reason. And then DiBiase backdrops where out of the ring for the first elimination. Uh, Matt, any thoughts on this little bit? This was the most, uh, believe it or not, that I've ever actually seen of Ted DiBiase. I have to admit, I was extremely impressed. I thought he was great and just very much enjoyed him. You know, obviously, I'll, I'll talk more about, you know, stuff he did, you know, later on. But, um, yes, yeah, you know, so, so far, so good. I was very impressed. You sound surprised, Matt. <laughs> I 100%. I'm more familiar with things, I, particularly 1990 for me. Again, like I said, it was the year I was born. So I haven't really gone back and watched a massive amount from that era. Um, and some of the things I have seen do tend to be very basic. And that's not always a bad thing. But a lot of the stuff that Ted DiBiase does... I can easily see him being, if he was plunked into today's sort of uh, landscape, he'd be just as good as anybody else, if not better than half of them, I think. Anything from yourself, James? I, I miss Coco. Coco everywhere is awesome. I, I I love watching him wrestle. I just so enthusiastic. Clearly loves his job and lives his gimmick. The the casual racism on the head bit thing, but thing aside, um, yeah, I, it, it, they did what they needed to do. And Ted had to kind of be dominant because he was trying to sweep the rumble which was this kind of like, I suppose this was um, kind of a precursor of what would happen with Flair a couple of years later. You know, it was kind of like a good way of like seeing if it would work for anybody to try and go all the way through the Rumble. Would it be believable? So they kind of, I suppose they kind of like, well, let's give them a chance to see if it will work. So I kind of found that interesting historical perspective. Well, also, DiBiase is number one as well in the 92 mm. Rumble, I believe. So they've, it's almost like they were doing a little callback to this with in 92, yeah. Uh, ahead of Flair basically going through the going through the field. So number three is Marty Janetti, and he comes in. DiBiase catches Janetti with a big boot, and then Janetti goes for a flying crossbody, but DiBiase ducks, and Janetti flaps over the top of the rope. Um, so DiBiase still in control, and he's another one's gone out. I was intrigued by the pre-match promo um, from Marty and Sean, where they revealed that they they were hoping they could work together to work their way through the rumble, and then realised that wasn't going to happen, which kind of gave away what was going to happen. I, I don't think Janetti is showing enough belief in himself that just because he's drawn number three, he can't stay in long enough to be in with Shawn Michaels. So yeah, I was slightly concerned for their longevity in this particular rumble. That was the issue for me, was that he he basically said, yeah, we're not going to be in at the same time. And I was like, so you've just decided you can't win this, basically. <laughs> <laughs> We're stuffed. That's it. We went home. 
Well, Michaels might might still be able to win because we know he's coming in later. But Janetti has <laughs> specifically said, "I can't be there when you're you get there because yeah. I, I'm too early." Ridiculous. Yeah. So you're either like breaking kayfabe or you have no belief in yourself. Neither of these things is good. I'd say realistic. They're, they I'm, are I'm, I'm, at the time they were low mid card tag team. I mean, he's just he's being honest. He's saying, "Look, you know, come on. <laughs> what's the chances I'm going to win? You've got Hogan, you've got Warrior, you've got Mr. Perfect, you've got Savage, Piper." DBRC, all these great wrestlers. I'm, I'm just a, I'm a pleb compared to them at this point in time. If at first you don't succeed, lower, lower, lower your expectations. What about yourself, Matt? S- similar thing to uh, to Ted DBRC as well. It's another guy who I haven't seen that much of. Um, I, I, I mean, I've seen far more Shawn Michaels work than, than I have uh, of Mike Janetti's, and would you believe it? Again, pleasantly surprised. Um, like I even jotted down, I've even put a star on my notes. Janetti is great. <laughs> very much enjoyed him. I think is it this time that we need to tell our listeners, Matt, that you have made all of your notes on the back of envelopes that you found at your parents' house. Yeah, I mean, I, I literally I was scrambling to try and find paper. I know the printer my dad has is broke, so that was out. And I was looking all around the house. There is not paper anywhere, but there was envelopes all around. I was like, well, they'll do. Is it fair to say? Can we just almost put a I don't know, generic note in for every single one of these entrants that you're not going to have seen that much of any of these wrestlers. <laughs> that is an absolute fair point. Yes, most of these are, I don't want to say, I mean, I, I know who they are, but yeah, I haven't seen a massive amount of a lot of these guys yet. Okay, well, let us know by exception when it is someone that you think you've seen a fair bit of. And in fairness, everybody's seen more of Michaels than Janetti because there's much more of Michaels than Janetti to see. <laughs> Entrant number four is Jake the Snake Roberts. Now, what I will say for this, this is this is the moment I was talking about earlier on, which is the amazing moment in the Rumble for me, because this is also a time that's worth mentioning because we kind of forget it these days, is that obviously since about 97, maybe, WWE have played the entrance music for everybody who comes to the ring in the Rumble. But in, nine, in the early years of the Rumble, they didn't do that. But for this specific entrance... They play Jake Roberts' music and it works perfectly because DBOC has just eliminated a couple of people. You know, he's the heel. Everyone's starting to get a little bit down. Oh, the heel's going to, you know, crush all the competition. Then Jake Roberts' music hits and he walks to the ring and there's a massive pop and it's like, yes, come on, let's have this. And I just love this moment. I absolutely love it. I love mm. the bit when he comes to the ring and his music's cracking as well. Like, I, I mean, we've, it's nothing new. It's not news. We've we've spoken about this on the podcast before. But in this instance is where I think it works absolutely magnificently because he just comes out. And the way the music kind of sweeps across, like that's how I would, doesn't hit you in the face. It's a sort of, it's almost like a a wave, this 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 music. And it and it doesn't hit its peak until he kind of, he's about four or five steps towards the ring. It's just, it's just magnificent. So I, I love this moment. He comes out and then there's a little bit of back and forth then between he and uh, DBRC. And we've got a, a DBRC counter in a DDT with a backdrop and everyone going a bit crazy. Jake's such a star at this point. Like you forget the, I mean, today it, you have people that don't like scream and shout during promos, but like Jake still Jake stood out because he's the only one that doesn't scream, shout and hurtle his voice through the entire uh, promo sequence. He's the one that talks quietly and grabs your attention through patience and directness. And he kind of wrestles like that as well. It's like he takes a slow, steady walk to the ring. He makes everybody think about it. And that's what made him different. That's what made him a star in that era. And there are a couple of people do that now, but it kind of all started with him. 
and it's it's nice. It, you can see the influence he has. Yeah, I mean, I I've seen a bit more of um of Jake and a lot of the stuff that I have seen. Like the first word that comes to my mind with Jake is, is probably methodical. Um, you know, a, a, everything he does, you know, is is quite sort of it's a bit slower, but but intensely. You know, there's an intensity to it as well, and it, it was interesting. You know, like I said, you know, seeing how he you know sets certain things up, and it was really good. Yeah, I mean, I just I just love it. I just love this bit. I just think it's great. And this next sequence of entrances as well, I just think is is magnificent because up next we get the Macho King, Randy Savage, who is by this point, of course, a heel. He gets to the ring and he and DiBiase then double team on Jake Roberts for a while. Now, this I must have completely blocked from my memory because I don't remember Macho Man being a heel. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I know I've, I've written down like lots of question marks. I was like, "Is he a heel?" And I just don't remember that at all. So I was quite taken aback. Well, you were you weren't you were just born when it happened. In fairness, true, I mean, it, if, yeah. <laughs> you weren't expected to remember it necessarily. It just it sounds like you didn't even know that he had been a heel. Is what you're saying, really? No, I mean, it's just one of those things. Though, like you know, you, you hear you hear about certain people having you know like babyface and heel runs, like you know. I know I never really saw it, but I know Goldberg had a heel run, uh, and you know, you know certain people like that. And I just never thought that he had a heel run. So when I heard about it, I was like, oh, okay, it was a bit surprising. But uh, I, I don't know what did, did it work. What, what do you guys think? You know, did, did he work as a heel? His first run in IWC was a babyface, then he was a heel in Memphis, and that drew massive crowds, uh, like ten thousand, twelve thousand in Memphis every Monday night for months on end. But he had Lawler to work with as top babyface. In WWE, it's how he got over. I think, yeah, I think he was as good a heel as there was in the 80s. And, you know, I think he was, this time period is starting to fade out, but he's still a vital player within WWF. And I think he was as good a heel as they had. Matt, it surprises me you didn't know that Savage was heel, because obviously he is a heel at WrestleMania 3 when he faces Ricky Steamboat for the Intercontinental title. Because obviously Steamboat was never a heel, so. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) (laughs) So he came into WWF as a heel, became a babyface, teamed with Hogan for a year, and then became a, a heel again, uh, turning on Hogan. And then that's when that's, this is the, the the period of time we're in is after he's turned heel on Hogan, the main event of WrestleMania five. And now we're moving on to the following years. I think he obviously did work as a heel. I mean, he headlined WrestleMania five against Hogan as a heel. I mean, he had to do the heel turn and he, he, in order to stay at the top of the card because he would not have done because Hogan was just going to was going to be ahead of everybody. So Savage, I think, did very well as a heel. Obviously, in the end, he went back to being a babyface and ended his WWF career as a babyface. But he had some pretty, pretty big periods as a heel. In fact, mm-hmm. he's obviously even part of the NWO as well as a heel. So he's been he's been heel loads, Matt. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> need to go back and uh, relearn some of my history. I am I am concerned at this particular point because he does seem to have skipped leg day an awful lot. I am <laughs> sure Randy Savage's thighs were a lot thicker than this, or maybe it's because everyone else in this rumble is so incredibly large. Mm. You know, the first big guy who comes in is Warlord, and he's not that much bigger than the rest of them. And there's people in this rumble that shouldn't be that size. It's funny you should say that, though, as well, because right now in the people we've seen so far, I mean, you've got Jake Roberts, who, whilst in good shape, is never the most athletically looking um, wrestler. And we've got DiBiossi also had a tendency to be a bit of a dad bod occasionally. Yeah. So it's not like you've got the most honed guys in there, but you're right. There's a lot of big guys in this rumble. 
Yeah. And uh, talking to big guys in a different way, up next is Rowdy Roddy Piper. He's a sixth man in the ring, and he, the crowd are just, at this point, the crowd are going mad. They've just had the brilliant bit with Jake Roberts coming out with his entrance music. He's the only one who gets it, other than the first two entrants to the Rumble. Then you get Savage, he's one of the biggest heels in the company, headlined the previous year's WrestleMania. Then you get Piper, one of the biggest stars in the industry uh, of, the, of the last decade. And they're just going mad for it. We've got a, we've basically got a two on two tag team tornado match going on with Piper and Roberts against DiBiase and Savage. It's, it's fucking brilliant. This bit, I absolutely love it. I, I, I really <laughs> love this. This is the bit I was talking about. I, I was worried that this bit coloured my entire view of the whole rumble because I could remember <laughs> this bit and I was like, it's so good. It's so good. It's a brilliant rumble. And then I thought, well, we are only six entrants in, so who knows. <laughs> This is the point where Sam would be saying you would you would shot your bolt too early in much I, more graphic fashion. I'm, I'm, I'm just about <laughs> to say the same thing. Yeah. Do you know I, I did pretty much write down at this point that these guys barely have to do anything and the crowd are just lapping it all up. You know, like just the, the smallest of things, and they are because they are just such big stars to everybody there. So you know, they, they, yeah, they barely have to even look at each other, and the crowd are going crazy. So it, it definitely did work, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, it's. I think that's the thing is like I've just watched Wrestle Kingdom, and they have a battle of Royal Rumble. It's called Rambo, and Tatsuji Fujinami turns up. Now he's about seventy, and he does two moves. He lays in a dragon screw leg whip. And he does a figure four. And that's all anyone wants to see. And he does that. And the crowd went, well, relatively crazy because they're only allowed to clap. Although it was a big clap when he delivered that figure four, which in the Japanese Royal Rumble, submissions and pinfalls were allowed. But it did mean that everyone just kind of sat on him and he got pinned in about two minutes. But that's all he had to do because he's the star. And that's kind of a small version of what happens here. You've got all of this big star power, and it is a joy to watch, I have to say, because no one's really doing anything particularly technically tricky, are they? Now, now you've got to explain something to me, because I've seen Stephen uh, from Mid-South Moments, who's joined us before on the podcast, talking about this on Twitter, this clapping thing in Japan. Like, yeah. How the hell do they enforce that? So basically what you're saying is no one's allowed to cheer or chant or go, oh, like they usually do. They, <laughs> yeah. they can only clap. Yeah, that's it. And, and, they, and that's what happens. That's what happens. The closest... This has been going on for 18 months now. And the closest I've seen to anyone making any noise other than clapping was there was a big showdown between Noah and New Japan Pro Wrestling and Shingo Takagi, who's just lost the world title to Okada, got in the ring with the GHC heavyweight champion Nakajima and the whole crowd went, <gasps> and then they saw, oh, we're not allowed to speak, are we? No. <laughs> and they, they clapped really loud for a bit. And then it was like, that was amazing. How do they enforce? I mean, do they literally have somebody like, you know, like a TV guy go around, you know, the audience, you know, with the big sign saying like, don't clap or, you know, applause now and, and that type of thing? No, no, that's they've, they've been asked not to. So they don't. They're just polite. I mean, the, you have to bear in mind within Asian culture, it's considered rude to pass on a cold. So they've been wearing face masks forever. New Japan Pro Wrestling and Noah sell branded face masks of your favorite faction. You can have a Bullet Club face mask, a Chaos face mask. So if you're used to that kind of culture of deferment anyway, just saying, would you mind not shouting? That's fine. They'll do that. Yeah. OK, so I'm going to I'm going to be the uh, I'm going to be the devil's advocate right now um, because I, and I'm not. And I am very fucking far from being any kind of covid cynic or vaccination <laughs> cynic. But f- forget that this is about covid. Those two things you've just said worry me somewhat. First of all, I would argue that it's not polite, it's deferent. 
which is not the same thing. And secondly, <laughs> um, they've just asked everybody not to uh, make any noise and I'm assuming uh, not to shout or anything. And I'm assuming they've mandated the wearing of face masks. So that might be the government who've done that. So I yeah. guess there's, there's, it's a bit different. And then they're, but then they're selling them face masks. So they've mandated you have to wear them, and now you're selling them. Um, I mean, come to on, be, to be, let's, to let, be, let's be let's be let's be honest about it. This is this sounds like a little <laughs> bit of a con. To be fair, before the pandemic, they were selling face masks. You could buy a chaos face mask. You could buy a Bullet Club face mask years ago. I remember seeing the adverts in 2013, just when Bullet Club got big. It's not like they're not like they just started doing it. They've always done it. And I, w- I would say yes, deference. But again, it's a cultural thing. It's just like they don't really need to kind of like have social structure laws in the sense of because they work as a collective society and always have done. So it's easier to say, would you mind doing this? And everyone goes, of course, because it's for the greater good. Well, that's enough politics for one week. Let's move on. <laughs> um, entry number seven is the warlord, not uh, not Tom's favourite version of the warlord. I should point out, since he's not here to do it himself, uh, he prefers the powers of pain warlord. But warlord, all the same, is number seven, and um, he goes after Piper and DBOC and Savage. Meanwhile, try to eliminate Jake Roberts. Matt, had you ever seen warlord before? <laughs> I have never seen the Warlord before. Wow. I can only remember, I'm sure it might have been an interview with possibly Batista years ago, when I'm sure he was saying the Lord, the Warlord was one of his favourites, and that just sort of stuck with me. So, so that's just how I remembered him. Yeah, I mean, he's big guy, you know, the, what, what, what else do I say? You know, that's about big, it. That's about it. The only thing you can, the only other thing you can say really is that, uh, and I've already made this joke when James was last on the show, I believe, but basically Steve Austin on steroids. He looks exactly like Steve Austin if Steve Austin had done a ton of steroids. And also, um, he's not Wardlow. That's somebody else. They're two different people. <laughs> you were saying it isn't the pain warlord. Are you sure? Because this looks like powers of pain era warlord and Mr. Fuji came out with him. I think it might have been the last appearance of the Powers of Pain under Mr. Fuji's tutelage before he sold the contracts to Slick and Bobby Heenan. Oh, I think I think I think we're going to have to go to VAR for that one. I don't I don't think that's right. <laughs> I don't think that's right. I think that they are now separate. I don't believe they're in a tag team anymore. But we'll have a we'll come back to that. I'll have a, I'll do a bit of research and we'll come back to that. Um, up next, we get entrant number eight, and it is Brett the Hitman Hart and uh, P- Piper and Hart double clothesline warlord. That's the only thing, the only note I've got of that happened <laughs> after that. But here's a, a how is this the earliest you've seen Brett Hart wrestle, Matt? Um, yes, it is, and you know what? It, it might be you, James. I can't, I can't remember off the top of my head, but um, I, I did ask, and in, in fact, it might have been you, Ben. I, I can't remember. I, I was asking on Twitter a while back for some recommendations for for some Brett Hart matches to to, to go back and watch because. Just in case people don't know, like I started watching wrestling from 2001. Um, that's not to say that I haven't gone back prior to that, but I haven't gone back a massive amount by any stretch. So a lot of stuff prior to certainly, I'd say, 98, maybe 97, to me, a lot of it is very foreign and it is very <laughs> new. Um, so yeah, so like this, this you know, was one of the one of the only times I've uh, I've seen Brett. Yeah. I'm going to give you a recommendation right now, Matt. Go back, go back and watch. Oh, you probably you may even have seen it. The Undertaker's debut at Survivor Series 1990. Mm. That that match. Go watch it. Don't worry too much about the Undertaker's yeah. debut because that's not the important bit. The last three or four minutes of that match is magnificent, and it's between Bret Hart and Ted DiBiase, and uh, it's lovely. 
including the end just what he does what what they do immediately after the end even that bit is just brilliant i would concur i i would give you the advice if you're going to go really far back the first match i saw him in was 1984 which is on world of sport if you can you can find it on youtube but he wasn't very good then like he was working his heel in the uk slightly and it just doesn't quite gel Great um, recommendation, James. What, just, what a brilliant just, recommendation that I'm is. Saying, <laughs> save yourself some time by starting in 1985. Yeah. Let me finish, Ben. <laughs> you haven't given him any recommendation. You've just told him what to avoid. Yeah, start after <laughs> 1985. That's um, the first time I've heard the two Brett are not very good in a sentence together. <laughs> That's the first time I've heard James say any wrestler's name and not very good in the same sentence together. <laughs> It's because I've got his back up because I started criticising the Japanese fans. See, that's what's yeah. happened. So up up next is number nine, Bad News Brown. And he comes out. Jake Roberts goes for a DDT on DiBiase, but Savage hits him with a clothesline and Roberts is the third man eliminated. So this is the first one for a while. We've had quite a few people come in the ring and Roberts um, is gone. Then we get Savage saving DiBiase from being eliminated by Rowdy Roddy Piper. I was a bit, bit disappointed that they didn't draw upon the history of Bad News Brown eliminating bret hart last in the wrestlemania 4 battle royal here of course mm. there's no reason why they would <laughs> refer back to it because that's not wwf style really but you know i'm I'm a big big stickler for continuity and i thought that would be a, a good place to start here oh you know there's this history here in a battle royal between bad news brown and bret hart no no mention of it whatsoever that's the way they did things back then wasn't it oh that happened two weeks ago therefore it didn't really happen that's definitely the way they do things now yeah i don't, I don't necessarily know <laughs> if it was quite the same then but yeah yeah, it's, well, I mean, it, it wasn't as they did. I mean, like, it depends on the situation. Like Santana and Martel, every Royal Rumble for about seven years, they were each other's throats because they'd been a tag team seven years before. Yeah. Um. So sometimes they did. And then other times, like in quite big moments like that, it's just like, oh, that didn't actually, it wasn't that important to them. Well, Brett was a heel, I suppose, when it happened. So it would have been a bit, it wouldn't have done what they wanted to do for Brett. Yeah. Matt, any uh, any uh, previous experiences of Bad News Brown? Absolutely none, and I was trying my best to write Bad News Barrett. I was trying so hard, I was writing down, I was like, no, no, Bad News Brown, and I just kept doing it. I could recommend some Bad News Brown matches for you, if you like. How good are we talking? <laughs> uh, he did a run in the UWFI in Japan in the early 90s, where he just was a badass, because he's a former um, bronze medal judo player, and... Um, he was under the, his uh, original wrestling name of Brad News Allen. So I'd recommend them. They're completely up your street. No storyline whatsoever, just actual sports style wrestling. Are people who do judo called players? Yes, they are. Wow. It's like chess. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want to consider, they're not considered, they try and consider itself less, more of a sport and rather than a, a martial art these days. So they prefer player to fighter, even though like Bad News Allen slash Brown is clearly one of the hardest people in the history of professional wrestling. Up next is number 10, Dusty Rhodes. He goes straight after Randy Savage. They are in a feud and there's a there is a little uh, segment that comes up before this, before the Rumble itself that we will get to. But later in the show and then Savage gets back, dropped out of the ring in a big way. He goes massive over the top rope here for his elimination. So Dusty Rhodes is in now, Matt, you've definitely heard of Dusty Rhodes. (laughs) I love Dusty. Um, I, I hate his ring attire. You know, the polka dots can't stand it. However, I will say that he does have some of the best entrance music. The, the, the common man theme is just so great. Like, I can't help but sing that in my head. But uh, Dusty's brilliant. For, for me, he was, he was one of the stars of the show. 
Matt, what's, what good is it singing it in your head? Let's get it out for the listeners. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was going to do it. I thought he was going to do it then, James. I thought we had it. I thought we had him on, on tape. Brilliant. How much money would you have charged him for a Knox Britain podcast? <laughs> I, I, I'd, I'd be charging everyone to listen to it. <laughs> what did you think of Savage's elimination? It, it was great. I mean, to be fair, like you said, he, he did get quite high on that uh, on the backdrop. Um, I, you know, hopefully, he wasn't hurt or anything afterwards. I didn't think he was, but um, yeah, he, he got some elevation on it. Was great. I think Savage at this point is is kind of like proper bump machine still, isn't he? For everybody, and it's difficult in the Rumble to get a pop for elimination because there's just so much stuff going on. You kind of got to wait till people got cornered off to do something big with an elimination when it's when it's just one of the normal size guys. Like if it's like the Undertaker or Hogan or like a physically big guy, then you get a bit more of a pop from it. So to get that kind of reaction from from the crowd with just Savage is is really cool. Well, I said this um, last year as well when we did the Royal Rumble 2021 after doing a couple of other rumbles, is that you really notice with these early rumbles, they haven't quite yet figured out the best way to have multiple people in the ring without getting mm. each other's way. Whereas these days, you watch them now, they are so expert at hugging the outsides of the ring and staying out of the way of the thing that's supposed to take everybody's attention in the middle of the ring. They've just yeah. got it so down pat. But back then it was a little bit less rehearsed and they just didn't. It meant that occasionally they get in each other's way. And as you said, James, it's difficult sometimes to figure out what you're supposed to be watching at any one time. Now, the big name entrance continue next. We've already had Ted DiBiase, Jake Roberts, Roddy Piper, Randy Savage and Dusty Rhodes. I'm not going to count Bret Hart because he was in a big name at the time. Now we've got Andre the Giant, possibly the biggest star in the history of wrestling. I don't know. That's, that's got to be it. He's got to be in the question. He's got to be in the question for that, I would suggest. He comes in, he headbutts and hip tosses Warlord out of the ring immediately. So there goes Wardlow. I mean, Warlord. Mr. Fuji and Bobby Heenan then almost come to blows, which is, uh, which is a nice little moment. And we also have Andre with both Piper and Dusty in the corner doing his shoulder barges into the corner, which is pretty much all Andre could do by this point in fairness, because he was he was pretty declining in terms of his health and uh, his ability. I find it interesting watching Andre at this point in the Rumble, because I watched the Championship Carnival, um, I guess it's probably about three or four months later, and he tagged with Giant Baba, and I watched most of the matches I could find on YouTube. So I watched a lot of Andre and Baba at this point. Neither of them are spring chickens, but they managed to get to 10 points and Doc and Gordy, I think, won with like 16 points. So they weren't that far off. And it's like watching a different wrestler, because partly because the Japanese guys would bump all day for Andre. Like, they loved him. So they would like, you, you know, you've got Steve Williams, Dr. Death at his absolute pomp, looking completely unbeatable, essentially a walking human tank. And he bounces all over the place for Andre. And Terry Gordy does the same thing. And it just is like, compared to this, it's like night and day. Just because obviously Andre's slowing, but it is amazing like the difference you see in the way people present him um, and how they can get the best out of him. And probably, as probably as bad as it may seem, this probably isn't the best shape place to showcase him at this point in his career even though it's kind of what made him famous. Battle Royals were Andre's bag. That's what made him the star he was, um, because you can have this big event where he looks massively dominant without really ruining anyone. <laughs> so, yeah, and it's like, but you know, in that tag tournament, he looked amazing. And that's only a couple of months later. 
Do you know, I, I had a funny feeling that um, that he probably wasn't in the best of shape, you know, physically at this point. And just watching him get in the ring almost was slightly painful. And it, it was it was really cool to see him. Um, I, again, he's another one, would you believe it, that I haven't seen that much of. But it, it was really good to, to actually see him do his thing in the Rumble. And he sold for a lot of guys there, so which is quite interesting. And I don't know if anybody's seen it. I don't know if you guys have seen it as well. The um, It was an Andre the Giant uh, documentary. And they came out, it might have been on like Sky documentaries or something a couple of years ago, which mm. is absolutely fantastic. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend you go out of your way to see it. Um, it really is one of the better wrestling documentaries that I've ever seen. And that that was solely on Andre. So I, I definitely, you know, gained a lot you know, of knowledge on him from there as well. So No, I haven't seen that. I do want I do want to though. Um yep. yeah, he's definitely not they did a great job, WWE did. And I think I may have said this again. WrestleMania 7 last year we covered WrestleMania 7 and Andre mm. I don't I think is it he is in a match I think is he or is he just no is he, he tags just, with does he tag with Taku to defend the title against Demolition and they lose it no not at WrestleMania 7 that's a bit that's oh, WrestleMania weird. 6 they did that so WrestleMania 7 I no, think I he's think, just I think he just, just comes a, down just a, yeah yeah but they did a great job I think WWF did of kind of nursing him back down the card so they had yeah. obviously the big wrestlemania 3 match where already andre was suffering physically he wasn't was just not quite there anymore and they managed his decline down the card and obviously through his own ability to perform very very well and got the absolute most out of him that they, they could have done i think in fairness so you know putting him with Haku, as you just said james in terms of the colossal connection was probably um the best kind of think the last thing they could do with him was to put in a tag team and and yeah. have someone carry his matches and he could come in and do the last bits of it yeah which is essentially what baba did with him in japan as well you know so that's really all you could do with him at the time the thing about andre for me is he's such got such a good wrestling iq he could make that situation work and was probably well aware of his decline and was getting as much out of it as he possibly could as well so I said we've uh, been um, spoiled with the big names, and, and it doesn't stop there, because up next is the Red Rooster, uh, number 12 in the Royal Rumble. So after he comes up, Roddy Piper then is eliminated by Bad News Brown. Sorry, Piper eliminates Bad News Brown, who then, Bad News Brown himself, though, then pulls Piper out of the ring, and the, both of them brawl around the ring and down the aisle. Now, when I was watching this, I mentioned, I think it was last week or a couple of weeks ago anyway, that one of the one of the issues I've got with AEW at the moment is there are not enough organic feuds. All the feuds just seem to be completely manufactured out of nothing. They just appear out of thin air. Mm. This I, this is the kind of thing I'm talking about when I'm saying organic. It's not like they put them in a contrived situation to have them suddenly hate each other. The the good guy has eliminated the bad guy. The bad guy's reached in, cheated to get him out because he's annoyed that he got that he got eliminated, and then they've like both got pissed off with each other and started fighting. And that's a really organic way to get two guys into the feud. Very simple, very, almost a little bit cliche, but I don't care. I just mm. like the fact that it was organic, that it, they didn't have to contrive some silly situation or just some random event that didn't that came out of nowhere to make two people on a collision course for a feud. So that really, in that moment, I was like, this is what I'm talking about. That's what I want from from wrestling this is how you create feuds and they can be more elaborate than this but they need to be organic like this was and, and uh, this is what this is the kind of thing i'm looking for you used to get a lot of that in the rumble would set up a lot of things down the line probably some things grew out of the king of the ring in the same way like rematches down the line or 
you've cost me this, that this requires. And it's the sporting kind of thing again as well, sort of storytelling, which I kind of appreciate. More. And they can they can do all kinds of personal stuff after this. Now that they now that they're in this situation where they hate each other, I've got then no problem if they want to do a thing where Bad News Brown takes Roddy Piper's wife hostage and goodness knows what else <laughs> and, and they go crazy. That's fine. But the concept for why they're in the feud in the first place is based on completely organic circumstances not oh what's his name uh, malachi black's just going to suddenly attack the varsity uh, blondes like why like that's, that there's no there's no rhyme or reason to take place no, but you do know where that feud ends up though piper and bad news brown oh yeah of course i do <laughs> yeah of course i do sorry yes um no i do and uh yeah not not the best but that's not <laughs> doesn't matter that's not that wasn't what i was talking about i was talking I about saying, just, how they just, started yeah. the feud I, I, it's where people who've got their interest peaked who want to go through the WWE network to find what actually happened might not enjoy the ending. Just saying. Well, I think they should watch it just to see just to see for themselves what, what they make of it. Because I, I'm not even <laughs> sure what I make of it all these years later. So, so you know, this is the part where I'm going to come in with something slightly different. Oh. I, I partially agree with what you guys have said there. However, and I've written this down in bold caps, I hated this elimination. Now, don't get me wrong. It, they've done it in, you know, in Rumbles since. I get it, whatever. But Bad News Brown, and I nearly said Bad News Barrett again, <laughs> Bad News Brown was eliminated when he threw Piper out, yeah? If I remember correctly, is that yes. right? Yeah. How does that happen? I know they've done it since, but I just think it's so stupid. How can somebody who's no longer in the match eliminate somebody who's in the match it makes no sense if they uh, did something like um you know bad news distracted him and somebody else threw him over and then he wants to beat him up great all for it but i, I can't see how somebody who's technically no longer a part of the match takes somebody out who's in it i, I just think it's, it's just really stupid I, I would agree with that and to an extent because two years later Randy Savage eliminates himself by accident and they allow him to continue, which is surely a similar situation because bad news is no longer in the match and shouldn't be affecting what's going on in the match. So there is a rules inconsistency which gets twisted year to year to the advantage of the story rather than being consistent. That's true, and that but that bugs me, James. But the point you made, Matt, about him not being in a match anymore. I mean, I get it, but Let's be honest, if you're going to make that rule, that means you can never have anyone interfere in any match ever. It's, it's one thing if you have a guy, you know, I don't know, taunt somebody from ringside, you know, ha ha, you know, whatever, <laughs> you know, point and laugh, something like that. And then, you know, they turn their back and somebody else throws them over and then they can be mad at them because, oh, you know, you distracted me. But like, how can somebody who's no longer <laughs> in the match take so It just doesn't make any sense. Well, there's no DQ in it. What are they going to do? Disqualify him again? He's already out of the match. But in that, that case, then, if it's no DQ, why doesn't everyone just take a hammer with them? Well, maybe they should. Maybe that's the problem. <laughs> it's not It's not Roddy Piper's um, elimination here that's the problem. The problem is that nobody brings a hammer with them to the ring. <laughs> it, it is It is the rules. And again, like I said, it, it's happened in Rumble since then. And But, like, it, it bugs me then, too. I just, I, ah, it's just one of those things that, one of those rules in wrestling that they like to think they can just let slide by and people would ignore it. But damn it, not me. It feels like we've skipped over Red Rooster here a bit unfairly. I know well, I made the joke about him being a big star and all, but come on. Yeah. Okay, oh, well, we'll, we'll move on, shall we? Right. Okay. Well, so. I mean, it's like the Red Rooster gimmick was unfortunate. And Terry Taylor was a perfectly functioning wrestler. And if you, I haven't seen his matches from the old UWF, but he had the potential to be a big star. 
this was clearly not going to do anyone any favors and this is just an example of that it's just like hey it's red rooster ah he's gone stop kind of caring about him after a while okay well we are going to move on now yes Uh, (laughs) 13 is acts of demolition uh, he comes in. Andre chucks out Red Rooster. Like I said, he's gone pretty quickly. Then Axe goes after Andre. And then we have uh, he and Dusty Rhodes uh, join up to take on Andre. And they climb up in the ropes and they, they put the punches to him. Yeah, again, for me, this is another example of um, of Andre doing a lot of the selling. And I, I thought it worked really well and, and it helped the other guys. And um, I, I, did, uh, I did enjoy it. I mean, again... I'm not overly familiar with, with Demolition, but, you know, like I said, they were good. And, yeah, it was, it was interesting to see. Demolition are so over as well with the crowd. You forget that they kind of always got that reputation of being, like, road warrior wannabes and stuff and, you know, being a derivative tag team. But you forget, actually, they were solid workers and were that over with the crowd. It was insane. Yeah, later on when Smash comes into the ring, um, my wife, who wasn't watching the show with me, but did walk into the room at one point, looked at the screen and was like, why are they dressed up like the team from Dodgeball when they've got the S&M gear on? <laughs> and to be honest, I said, well, that's that's what everyone levels at them. That's the accusation is that they're just wearing S&M gear. But um, they were incredibly over, despite all that. They were really over. And I actually don't think, I think the Powers of Pain were more of a ripoff of the Road Warriors than Demolition. I think Demolition were slightly different. They had a different thing going on. And more of a BDSM thing going on. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I mean, did she see, she didn't see the masks either, did she? No, she didn't. They only wore the masks when they were hills, I think. So up next was uh, Andre the Giant's tag team partner, Haku, from the Colossal Connection. He runs in. And he goes to Andre's aid because we've just said he's tied up in the ropes. And then Dusty jukes and jives with Haku, punching him in the face and doing the the, the road dog spot, which is obviously Dusty's spot. But the point is, is I remember it more as the road dog spot. <laughs> we move on. <laughs> Entrant 15 is smash. Um, so Demolition go to work on Andre. Uh, and then when Haku tries to save him, they knock him down, too. That's the only note I've got after smash makes an entrance. We've already spoken a little bit about demolition, so I don't know if there's anything else you want to add here. Not really. No, I think that, I think we're, we're we're demolition level. Entry 16 is Akeem, the African Dream, originally named, of course, to get at Dusty Rhodes, who was the American Dream, but now they've got Dusty Rhodes, so he becomes a little bit obsolete here. Oh. Demolition double clothesline Andre over the top, so that's the end of Andre, and somewhere in all that, Bret Hart is eliminated, but we don't see it, the camera's missing, that's to my point earlier on, where basically it's just not as well choreographed back then. Hmm. Yeah, I, I thought I missed Brett being eliminated, and I was actually rewinding it for a minute or two. I was like, well, when, when did he leave? And, and then, yeah, they, they sort of said on the clown I was like, oh, okay, never mind. But he wasn't a big deal. He wasn't a big deal at this time, particularly. I mean, he wasn't yeah. a small deal. He had been a tag team champion, but uh, he wasn't a major deal at this point. I think he was doing a single speed with Dino Bravo at some time around this point, which will tell you how much they thought of him unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> so then we get entrance 17 jimmy snooker jimmy snooker sn- knocks out akeem from the ring and then um yeah then i've got the note which is demolition look like dodgeball snm gear wearing freaks um <laughs> which is effectively what my wife said i, I get the impression we're, we're going to stay quiet about jimmy snooker are we? i mean well i mean perhaps once we should really uh, i will point out that him and haku did double team somebody you did. Uh, they did. And that was the most interesting thing I kind of remember about Snooker in this particular Royal Rumble. 
A Fijian Tonga connection, they could Indeed. have been called. Uh, Polynesian uh, headbutts all round. Yeah, I think we, we probably best avoid it. I mean, as, <laughs> as, as Old Man, I think it was Old Man, maybe Tom said last week, that I don't want to say too much about him, otherwise he might kill me. So, entrant 18 <laughs> is uh, Dino Bravo. And um, I've got no notes after that because literally nothing happens. The match is starting to fill up with wrestlers. It's getting a little bit busy. Dino, we're also getting less stars now. In the last few entrants we've had, Red Rooster. I know we've got Haku and Axe and Smash, but we've not got the major stars that we've had previously. Then we've had had Jimmy Snuck, who was a big star in fairness to him. And now we've got Dino Bravo. And as you said, putting Bret Hart in a feud with Bravo shows you what you need to know about their opinion of Bret Hart, which also then shows you what you think of Dino Bravo. God, that's a convoluted <laughs> sentence, if ever there was one. I mean, I don't, I don't wish to speak ill of the dead. Um, however, Dino, I mean, had quite a career. This was the downward turn before he got to this stage of his of his wrestling career. So, and he kind of put on a load of weight, lost all of his mobility, and kind of shouted in a French-Canadian accent and stood next to John Tenter. Yeah, and I was going to say, if you don't want to speak ill of the dead, you probably don't want to speak the way of too many of these guys, because quite a lot of guys who passed on since since this happened. Not even being funny, but there are. It's, oh, it's no, quite, you're right. It's quite yeah. stark. It's quite stark how many have they have gone. I'm just looking at the list on my notes, and I'm, yeah, I've just realised that that's that, that's horrible. Matt, anything about the email? To, to be honest, at, at this point, yeah, it, it just started to you know fill up with people. I, I just got a couple of numbers of you know experts and came out, experts and came out. They did sort of slow down a little bit, but. No, I, I didn't really think much of Dino, to be honest. Well, this is the um, this is the filling up of the ring before the next major part of the match, which we'll get to in just a second, but not until after, first of all, entrant number 19, which is Canadian Earthquake, or just Earthquake as he's now known, especially when he's in Canada. Um, Earthquake eliminates Dusty Rhodes with a clothesline from behind, and then he slams Axe over the top rope. So they're very much you know, giving Earthquake a little bit of a push here. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is the build-up to that SummerSlam showdown with Hulk Hogan, isn't it? We're talking about six months down the line, and there's always kind of one person. Diesel, I think, had the same kind of push a couple of years later where he eliminated six or seven people in one night just to see how the crowd would react to him, and he was WWF champion within a year. And I think they're doing the same thing with Earthquake here. Can we make money with him? And... You know, John Tenter was a good hand, I always thought. I didn't think, I mean, he's, obviously, he's not Luthes, don't get me wrong. But like, Hang on, he what? Knew yeah, I- he is. <laughs> I thought, I thought Luthes was Earthquake. <laughs> I was like, Vince doesn't like to use the gimmicks that they used to have, so he's just repackaged it. I pretty much wrote down that, yeah, looks like Earthquake must be getting a push. I, in my head, I was thinking, I'm sure Hogan's in this rumble. I bet anybody he's throwing him out. But that, that that's the first thought that came to my head anyway. That's funny because I've got here. Now, here's Earthquake. He looks like Luthez. <laughs> <laughs> Entrant number 20 is Jim the Anvil Neidhart. So then we have everybody basically team up to eliminate Earthquake. So the, the, here's the thing. I don't think they did this very well with Earthquake here. I, this is where I because I said they're, they're pushing him and it, obviously he came in and limit, eliminates a couple of people. But I think given what we've had previous to this in terms of some of the entrants, Earthquake should have probably been entrant 12 after Andre. And they should have had then him have, dominate quite for quite a long time, eliminate four or five people over the course of that time. And then everybody team up on him to get rid of him rather than him come out for two minutes then everybody team up on him and he got, he's gone it just made him look a little bit of a chump yeah it doesn't get the gravitas that they're perhaps looking for they haven't really given him a chance to have they 
I mean, I know he couldn't go for like an extended period of time. He couldn't have done 25 minutes, but it doesn't take you that long to eliminate people, does it? Well, I don't think it's that he couldn't go because I think he probably could go for a while. It's more that they what comes next hmm. means they have to get him out of the ring. But hmm. that's why I'm saying just put him in earlier and have him yeah. you know, go a bit longer. Yeah, you know, again, I, I was expecting him to uh, to be eliminated, like, like I said, probably by Hogan or, or something like that. So I was a little bit disappointed at that elimination. But... So entrant number 21 is James's favourite wrestler in the world ever. It's the ultimate warrior. Um, <laughs> he runs in, he no-sells a bunch of stuff. He then inexpertly eliminates Dino Bravo when they get their timing all messed up. And then um, Warrior and Anvil take turns chopping DiBiossi. Yeah, oh, Jim. Just to be clear, you're talking about Jim Helwig, not Jim yeah. the Anvil now. Not Jim the Anvil. <laughs> Anvil, love me some Anvil. He's ace. Uh, Elwig, not so much. I, it's this is still some warrior doing ultimate warrior things, isn't it? And that's fine if you're into that kind of thing. Woe betide me to decry a wrestler for his lack of ability. And can't speak ill of the dead, can you, James? No, I can't possibly speak ill of the dead. No. Even if he was a cunt. Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't expecting that, right. Um, what, what, what can you say about him? I mean, he comes out at a million miles an hour. He looks just completely shredded. He, I, I don't, what do you say about him? I mean, he's like, like you know, he does ultimate warrior things. You know, it's, <laughs> I don't know how to describe him. It's just, you know, he does his, does his moves. It's okay. Everyone thinks he's a superhero. Okay, whatever. It's weird this because when I first got into wrestling, uh, the warrior had kind of gone already. But before that, I kind of knew a little bit about wrestling. And the warrior was always the one wrestler I thought most I'd most likely enjoy because he's colorful. He's kind of you're crazy, he kind of runs the ring. He's just, he just brought something very different, which I, I think does go a little bit unmentioned sometimes is that yes he was not good he wasn't a practitioner he wasn't a student student of the game you know i think people would technically um compare him to hogan in terms of his technical ability but that would be to massively undersell how good hogan was in terms of his psychology and his understanding of the business and just knew exactly what to do and exactly when warrior didn't really have that but what the warrior did have, which so many other wrestlers didn't, is just something unique. And whatever you want to say about him, my goodness, did he bring the energy to the role? You know, did he ever mm. bring that kind of energy and electricity? And at a time when wrestling in the mainstream was much more about just perception and and how the company themselves made you look, uh, that meant so much because you could make any number of wrestlers look good by booking them well, but then to become a major star, you had to do something else. And the warrior did. And it may not have been great. And you, when you look back at it, it's very, very easy to critique. And I am one of those people who would critique, as you've just heard me do about his personal life. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think sometimes we have to kind of give him some of his due, which is that he, he did provide something that not many other people were providing at the time. One of the great sliding door arguments for the Ultimate Warrior, for Jim Helwig, I guess, really, is the big Van Vader character, which was in New Japan Pro Wrestling, was originally slated to go to Jim Helwig. Mm. And it's always in my head. I can't imagine what Helwig would have done as big Van Vader, like how he would have got over with a Japanese audience, how he would have had that mega rung that Leon White did. And similarly, if Leon White, like in this bizarre land, Presumably, Leon White would have been the ultimate warrior. And how would that have changed? 
1990s WWE just like murdering people on a daily basis. <laughs> well, he wouldn't have been the Ultimate Warrior, would he? He would have, had, he would have been the Dingo Warrior, much like Jim Hell yes. was when he first uh, <laughs> when he first was in uh, w, when he was in WCCW. And yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think he would have become the Ultimate Warrior because uh, unfortunately, I think Vince wouldn't have seen the value in him but uh, no no it probably wouldn't but it is just like it just like it just sticks in my mind like if how would have Helwig like just like coped with Japanese wrestling like how I mean I think the fans would have actually bought into it if it was a similar kind of character as to the Ultimate Warrior I think the Japanese fans because they do like that larger than life just extraordinary character so I think he probably would have got over but I can't imagine what the matches would have looked like with the way that he probably would have got incredibly stiffed on a regular basis. So next up, it's uh, the model Rick Martel. He's entrant number 22. After he comes out, Haku eliminates Smash with a thrust kick. And then Martel almost goes out, but holds on just before he drops to the floor. Now, usually old man be straight in here because he loves himself a bit of Rick Martel. But uh, Matt, what did you think? Um, to be honest, I, I get it. For me, it was starting to, you know, a lot was starting to go on at this point. So I, I started to, to lose track a little bit. And I'll catch back up now. I have got a moment in my notes here, which was Shivani and uh, Jesse, the body Ventura on commentary. The lack of statistics that you hear in the commentary is quite stark. And I think this goes back to what we were saying earlier about the fact that storylines didn't get picked up on from like previous years and things. It seems very much of the moment, but I'm like, if I was listening to like Kevin Kelly or Rick Abani or uh, anyone commentate on this now because of the Jim Ross influence, you'd have statistics about their college football career and how many times they won the Intercontinental Championship and da 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 da. And I remember A, back then they didn't exist before they were in WWE, and B, championships never changed hands for years in WWE. So there wasn't that that much statistics to talk about. It became obvious why they weren't talking about it. But it does just strike me as like such a different way to present wrestling compared to what we are used to now. Well, I think also you'd find that you'd have statistics about the Rumble itself. Yeah. But given that this is only the third one, yeah. you had less of those to talk about as well. So actually at the beginning of the match, they do make the deal of DBOC being number 30 the previous year and now being number one this year. But haven't got that history of the rumble they can't even do that they can't even go oh you know so and so's the man with the most eliminations of the rumble ever or this guy's got the record for being in the ring for however long you know because it just doesn't mean anything and it actually <laughs> would bother me if they did like when we were talking about nxt last year and they kept uh you know we were talking about like one of the 2015 nxt shows and they were talking about one of the wrestlers being the best nxt champion of all time and i'm like for fuck's sake all time times nothing <laughs> you've not had any history it's a ridiculous commentary, so I'm quite happy they didn't, to be honest. We haven't talked about that, though. Tony Schiavone on commentary. This is one of his, uh, br- his yeah. British in WWF. I think it only lasts for like nine months or something. And uh, he's here with Jesse Ventura, a different commentary team entirely than you would have ever heard on WWF television. Although, of course, they would have teamed, I assume, together quite a bit when uh, Jesse went over to WCW later in the 90s. Matt's probably the best person to talk about this because I've heard them a lot together and I really enjoy the works. So Matt might have a fresh take. I never knew that Tony Schiavone worked for WWE. Like when I put the show on at first, I was like, I could, I could swear that's Tony Schiavone. I was like, no. <laughs> and then I looked at, it, I was like, oh my god, so he did. And I, I love Tony Schiavone. I, I have them for years, and I thought the pair of them were fantastic together. They were a breath of fresh air. Yeah, I think so as well. I mean, I think that that you used to kind of like at this point, it'd be well, Gino and Jesse did 
Gorilla and Jesse did um, WrestleManias, didn't they? And that was a very unique kind of partnership pairing who genuinely like one another. And you get the feeling that Jesse and Tony genuinely like one another. There's some fun needle back and forth, but they're not. It's not like Heenan and Monsoon who are over the top with it. So it was nice. It was relaxing. It was low pressure commentary. And that was cool. I kind of like that. I genuinely think that Jesse is is the the more I listen to him, I, I've previously written him off a little bit, to be honest. But I think the more I listen to him, the more I realise that I think he's probably the best colour commentator in terms of striking the right balance between trying mm. to justify what the heels are doing, but not winning that argument. And that is so important to me. The heel should the heel commentator should never win the argument. The babyface commentator should always come across as winning the argument so that you establish the moral ground that you're supposed to understand from what you're seeing. You know, they establish what the morality of the universe you're watching is. And when the heel commentator wins the argument, it completely tears away the concept of there being uh, a reason why the good guys do good things and the bad guys do bad things because suddenly you're like well if the bad guy's right why don't the good guys do the same it doesn't it doesn't make <laughs> any sense it ruins the whole concept of there being somebody who's good and somebody who's bad and i think jesse ventura just strikes the balance perfectly so that his arguments are good and they're sound and they go some way to explain why the hills would do the things they're doing but he's also always loses the argument um, no matter who's against and therefore that means that you still can keep that moral center um, to the whole thing I think as well Jesse he always give the baby faces their due because if the baby faces aren't any good the heel hasn't beaten anyone any good so therefore he knew his role that way as well and you know he, he was I think it was like one of the matches we watched on this one of the baby faces started cheating and after a long while have been cheated on and Jesse was like that's fine it's turnabout is fair play that's okay you know that's what you're supposed to do so, yeah, Jesse was more kind of realistic, though he was on the side of the heels. He kind of had a realism about him that I liked. Yeah, he was great. You know, build, build them up before you tear them down. So we get to entrance 23, which is back to what you talked about earlier on, James. Strike force strikes again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tito Santana comes out and goes straight after Rick Martel. That's actually the only note I've got after Santana's entrance. But the, the, there was always interesting exchanges down the years. Um, even when Tito became El Matador, they still went after one another. So <laughs> clearly a hard time forgiving from Tito Santana. Tito is one guy that I put an asterisk by saying I loved Tito in this. I thought he was great. Yeah, he's a, he's a, I, I'm quite a fan of Tito. Uh, he's a decent wrestler. He's had a and he had a long career. He's one of the sort of stalwarts of the WWF post 1985, was when we got into the WrestleMania age, but never really meant an awful lot uh, ultimately. And the main the main way he was defined was through his feud with Rick Martel and then their opposition over the course of many years. He was, because he was an early Intercontinental Champion, he was a good person to kind of get that belt over. I think Hennig beat him for the IC Championship in the tournament final a few months after this, didn't he? So he was kind of always eternally associated with the Intercontinental Championship, but destined never to get it back. He'd been with the company from the early 80s um, in the WWF. One of the few people that had made it from the Backland era into the sort of deep Hogan era. Um, but yes, Honky Tonk Man is entrant number 25 and he comes out and is met by the Warrior instantly, which is a nice callback to their match at mm-hmm. SummerSlam from the previous, from a couple of years previous to this, I think. Um, and then we see that Warrior 
does some elimination. So he dunks Neidhart over the top and then clotheslines DiBiase out to a big pop. Fans very, very happy to see DiBiase go out after what had been an Iron Man session from him. So he'd been obviously number one, and this was now number 25 that he, uh, sorry, number 24 that he'd got eliminated after the in, the introduction of. Yeah, he really was the Iron Man of this thing for, and held a lot of it together for, for the longest time. So fair play to him. And yeah. for, for me, he was one of the stars of the match. This is one of the things that I think they've fallen back on quite a lot since, is having maybe not somebody who's going to work the whole match from number one, but certainly having a seasoned pro in there early on that can be in, can be in there for quite some time. And this was, you're right, this is basically DiBiase holding the match together for the first 45 minutes before the sort of closing yeah. sequences. Glue wrestlers, isn't it? That's the, that's the insider phrase, I believe. The glue wrestlers are really important in like things like uh, three-way dances because you have to have one person who can control traffic, basically. And this is a much more responsible version of that. And and Matt, the Honky Tonk Man's the greatest Intercontinental Champion of all time. Just, you know, it literally it just goes back to actually, I'm sure it was the 2001 Royal Rumble um, he was actually in, and he just came out saying he was the greatest Intercontinental Champion of all time. And that was one of the earliest shows I remember seeing. I just thought, oh, okay. this, And I just believed it. <laughs> You know what, though? It's interesting you should say that because I remember I used to watch quite uh, sorry, I used to listen to quite a lot of Wade Keller on the PW Torch and his his kind of shows. And he used to lament the fact that there are people of a certain age who used to think that Honky Tonk Man genuinely was one of the best Intercontinental Champions of all time, simply because Honky Tonk Man had said it enough <laughs> that it made enough people believe it. But in truth, you remember when Santina Morella was also an Intercontinental Champion and was talking about being the greatest Intercontinental Champion of all time? That was effectively the same level of quality the Honky Tonk Man brought to the title. He just held it for a very long time. It did tell Vince that he flat out wasn't losing on television. <laughs> <laughs> which just kind of like, you know, I ain't doing it. I ain't jobbing on TV, which is a level of audacity. I have yet to come across in professional wrestling, and that's that's saying something. <laughs> I was going to say, like knowing more certainly about the the more modern side of, of uh, or more modern era of uh, of wrestling, to hear Holly Top Man's reign compared to Santino Morella really does put it in perspective for me. Yeah, I mean, he was given the title in the first place because Vince McMahon was angry with Ricky Steamboat. That's why he got given the title in the first place. Yeah. Ricky Steamboat wanted to go and spend some time with his family after beating Savage at WrestleMania 3, and Vince wasn't happy about it, so he made him drop the belt to Honky Tonk Man, who was effectively a bit of a joke wrestler. And then it just so happened the Honky held on to the belt for fucking ever. Like, I think he is still the longest reigning, like the longest, had the longest run as Intercontinental Champion ever, but was beaten in like 25 seconds by the Warrior at the SummerSlam 88. So next up, we get the big entrant of the night. It's the Hulkster, Hulk Hogan. He's number 25, comes in, goes up to Snooker. They have a little bit of back and forth, and then he clotheslines him out. Hits the big boot to take out Haku. Warrior then dunks out Tito Santana as he's trying to get, as Santana's trying to get rid of Martel. And then um, Honky ch- chokes Hogan with Hogan's shirt. Now, we talked about Hogan's shirt, the Royal Rumble 92, and that got passed around a lot. It didn't get passed around as much here. But Honky used it. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I thought there's another one that's going to go around. So yeah, the Hulk stays with us. He's, it is a grand entrance, and he again, I, and I think this is possibly because I've been listening to these Japanese audiences that can only clap. I forget about audience popping <laughs> and how much of a pop they can give. 
when it's just right and it's the right guy at the right time and it's Orlando and it's Disney and it's it's Florida in the 90s and of course Hulk Hogan's going to be over like Rover and he is and it's still it's still Hulkamania running wild and I, I kind of forgot what that was like you know even today's I hate to say nowadays wrestlers don't get pops like that they do but it's not this was every week every time you saw him on television every time you saw him in an arena this was happening so often and you can I guess I didn't I didn't realize how much you wouldn't hear that again no you're absolutely right because you get you get pops like this if for example Adam Cole surprisingly debuts at a, a yeah. pay-per-view if Simple comes out of retirement after seven years yes but yeah. you don't get it week on week like Hogan and Austin did later on and even in fairness the warrior is sort of at this point as well Mm, yeah, I still can't get over Hogan's hair. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just couldn't believe it. I was thinking, how old was he here? Because I mean, man, he's had that hair for a long time now. So he's got to be, I think, only late 30s. So I think he's only probably about 37, 38, maybe even a little bit younger, actually, here. It's really I mean, not as old as people think he is. His hair looked like that in the early 80s when he was wrestling <laughs> like the territories in New Japan. It, it still looked like that, slightly balding at the front. Yeah. He had the same haircut from the late 70s. I think that, didn't he have that match with Andre on the undercard of one of the Shea Stadium shows? And he still had that haircut then. Yeah, it was, the, it was on the undercard of the San Martino's Abisco one, cage yeah, yeah. match, Shea mm. Stadium card. So, yeah, I mean, he had, I mean, he, you're right, he had a bit more hair and he wasn't bald on top, but he had mm. a receding hairline quite, quite, quite a long way back. Yeah, he apparently he had a rule that nobody else in WWF at the time could mention his receding hairline. It was like <laughs> actually a rule in the company. Yeah, you know, like, like you guys said, the, the pop for him was absolutely insane. And, you know, just, just to see him do his sort of Hogan routine was, uh, it, it, was it was cool. I mean, it's one of the most, you know, tried and tested formulas, as we now know, as he did for years afterwards. But my God, did it work. So up next is... Uh, one of the greatest WWE wrestlers of all time, certainly, Shawn Michaels, who gets about 30 seconds in the ring here um, because Hogan tosses um, Honky Tonk Man over the top rope. Warrior chucks out Michaels and Martel. And all of a sudden, we've got the second big set piece of the night as the confrontation between Hogan and Warrior ensues and the crowd go berserk. Um, they shoulder barge each other, do a crisscross, double clothesline one another. Both are down and the countdown begins for the next entrance. So this is this is what this match is about. This this 30 seconds is what the point of this match is. It's to build to Hogan versus Warrior at WrestleMania in about two, three months after this. Of course, they hadn't announced that that was the match by this point. But this is what it is to do is to start to put into everybody's mind that this is what you're going to get at WrestleMania. It's so well done as well. Poor Michael's getting yeeted into the first row, probably, you know, is, is nice to see. Um, but also, <laughs> <laughs> just the way they laid this match out is just the ability to clear the ring just at the right time, timed it so right. The crowd are just at the right fever pitch. If they'd done this earlier, it wouldn't have worked. If they'd done it later, they'd have given themselves booking problems. This is just the perfect time to do this kind of angle, and it works so well. Yeah, you know, you, you pretty much sort of said it there that um, this was the set at WrestleMania. And, and it was, it answered the question that, that I'd written down as well since Hogan came out, because I, I didn't realize that, that he was WWE champion at the time. I figured he probably would be, but didn't know for sure. And then I was thinking, so what's this Royal Rumble for? What does the winner get? Um, and then, you know, like I said, as soon as they paid 
spoken a word together. I was like, ah, okay. I mean, I, I obviously know now that they did, you know, have their main game at first again. Okay, but that must be what this was all about. They didn't get to, I think, was it 92 was for the championship and it was after that year that you got the shot at Wrestle, King, Wrestle Kingdom, WrestleMania. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. Um, I think that would be amazing if you got the shot at Wrestle Kingdom from Royal Rumble. That'd be, that'd be awesome. But it'd be, even, it'd be even more impressive if you did it from 1993. See, <laughs> Wrestle Kingdom didn't even exist at that point. Yeah, so. true. Yeah, the winner doesn't get anything for this, and that's just, that's the way it was from '88, the first Rumble, right through to to '92, when as, as you said for the title. This is where WWE, above all else, this is where WWE are, where they really. This is why they're number one because they get moments like this perfectly correct so often and have done over their history. I wouldn't necessarily say they do it so much these days, but there was a time when no one could do this kind of moment like WWE. The production values they had. They had Pat Patterson, who just knew, just laid things out in such a way that meant that they could get the most from it. Regardless of what anybody thinks of Vince McMahon, they had he had he has a, an instinct for these million dollar moments. That's what he has an instinct instinct for, and this is where it plays out. And it gives you just, as I say, thirty seconds of a preview of what the match at WrestleMania six is going to be without telling you that that's the match, without actually making them dislike one another. There's no, there's no feud or anything. It's just, this is the match you want. It's the biggest two baby faces against one another. You know, even the way that, even the way they did it meant you were just waiting for more then. You were like, well, I want to watch the rest of this because I've only seen the merest hint of them facing off against one another. And Tony Schiavone even says it on commentary. He says, I want to see more. And it's just... All of it together, the package. This is where WWE really make their money and really show themselves, show why they ultimately were number one for such a long time and have been for such a long time. No other company could do anything like this as well. I think it's the the size of the Warrior and Hogan as characters as well within the WWE or WWF as it was then fandom. You know, they are the, there's no one bigger, so it's going to be just you just you've just got to time it right. But it, it's not easy to just time it right. As we've seen so many people have so many big stars and not been able to do anything with them, you know, because it just they haven't been able to get those moments to line up the way they should do. I think I think also it's it's the way they book them. Hogan had been um, world champion for four years, then dropped the belt, not through basically dropped the belt to Andre in the controversial way that he dropped the belt, then won it back from Savage after Savage had won the tournament to win the title. So effectively, Hogan had been beaten, certainly not cleanly, for well over six years by this point. The Ultimate Warrior had come in in about 87, had been dominant, completely dominant throughout that entire period of time. And so basically, you've got two guys that just never lose. And now suddenly they're against one another. I mean, it's not it's not rocket science, (laughs) (laughs) but it's uh, it takes it does take a little bit of discipline, which is perhaps the problem I think they might have now. They don't have that discipline so much. No, I mean. Warrior lost one major match, which is against Rick Rude in, in a cage. That's right. Yeah. But it it wasn't it wasn't a cage match. He got a cage pinned. match. No, his cage match was a rematch, wasn't it? Sorry. He, he got pinned. Yeah. Yeah, he got pinned in the controversial. Yeah. So he gets pinned once, but it didn't really harm him because of the amount of dominance that he had. Mm. Do, you, do you know? For me, it's got to the point now where, in in some cases, I'd even argue that the Royal Rumble and the that moment, depending on you know, the, the, the stars they put in there, means more than the WrestleMania match itself. Um, not always the case, don't get me wrong, um, but I do feel there has been instances where 
you know, that that sort of, you know, brief snippet is miles better than what we eventually get. Yeah, it's probably a good case for that. I'm thinking the moment between Lesnar and Drew McIntyre a few years ago springs to mind, actually, in that respect. So they are now both down. The next person in is the Barbarian. So here's the next bit, which I think is really quite clever, because all they're looking for is someone who's big, who can actually get in there and is allowed to kind of take turns beating up Hogan and Warrior. who have both gone down on the power of their clotheslines, but they need someone in there who looks physically dominant enough to be able to keep them both down for the next couple of minutes while they fill the ring with other people. And that's who they've got. They've got Barbarian and he comes in, drops some elbows on both of them. And uh, we are, we've already lost it. The, the, the fleeting excitement of the Hogan warrior thing is gone <laughs> just like that. But it's, that's the genius of it. It's like you add it for literally 30 seconds, no more. They're now not going to even touch each other for the rest of the match. And it works out so much better than having to point at a sign. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no signage required here. It was signposted enough. The audience was that tuned in. <laughs> so, uh, entry number 28 is Hill Rude. There's no countdown for him. He comes in early. Ventura says that he's, he, that's, he, that's his explanation anyway. Maybe they had some technical difficulties. Although the other potential is that he did come out early because he wanted to help Barbarian break, keep the two baby faces down. They work over Hogan and Warrior together, Rude and Barbarian, and then they almost eliminate Hogan, but Warrior saves him. Uh, Rude and Barbarian then try to eliminate Warrior, and Hogan then clotheslines them from behind, and Warrior goes out over the top as a consequence. This is the bit where Jesse Ventura gets on the back of Hogan, saying that, uh, well, in fact, he goes, he gets on the back of Warrior, saying that Warrior should have done to Hogan what Hogan did to Warrior. Um, but then Tony Schiavone defends Hogan, saying he didn't think Hogan meant to eliminate the Warrior. This was better than the 92 Rumble where Hogan pulls Sid Justice out and remains a babyface. That is completely <laughs> illogical. It's like you built Sid Justice up to be a babyface and he's considered a uh he's not a warrior level draw but you're trying to portray him as a warrior level draw so hogan pulls him out and he's still the baby face and justice is a crybaby because hogan pulled him out whereas this makes sense it's believable that hogan didn't know he was eliminating the warrior or you could say well i am eliminating the warrior but i'm trying to eliminate everybody because it's the royal rumble you know i I almost would have liked to have seen warrior eliminate hogan there just just for a fleeting second i was thinking "Hmm, i wonder if that would have been better what do we think? I think it would have worked. You'd have to have Warrior as the Rumble winner, and that would set precedent to what we have today. So it probably actually might have been a bit more logical in one sense. But I still mm. think you've got to have, you've kind of got to have your most dominant player as dominant in this particular situation. Would be my thought process. So maybe Vince was right. I don't think this was anything to do with Vince. I think this was Hogan saying, "Look, if you want me to put Warrior over at WrestleMania, I'm winning the Rumble. Simple as that." Fair enough. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, I, I would imagine so. Um, actually, we'll talk about who wins at the end because we know who wins, but we'll talk about that in, <laughs> in just in just a second. Because next up, we've got Hercules, who's number twenty-nine. He helps Hogan against Rude and Barbara, and I hadn't I hadn't figured that Hercules was a babyface at this point, but he was. Any any thoughts on Hercules? I'm assuming Matt, this is probably the first time you've ever seen Hercules <laughs> wrestle. It, it it was, and what an impression he left. Uh, He's just a guy, to, to be perfectly honest. It was like, oh, okay, <laughs> cool, I've seen him, tick. <laughs> that was about it. 
So entrant number 30 is then Mr. Perfect. He goes straight after Hulk Hogan. Um, Hercules backdrops Barbarian out, then Rude clotheslines Hercules out after a Mr. Perfect dropkick. So we are left with Rude and Perfect and Hulk Hogan. Rick Reed and Mr. Perfect double team Hogan. Um, Hogan, though, ducks under a Rude clothesline and um, Rude gets Perfect, which then sends him over. But then Perfect holds on and keeps himself on the apron. Uh, With Perfect trying to get back in the ring, Hogan then Irish whips Rude towards him and Rude tumbles over the top as Perfect is holding onto the top rope trying to get in. Perfect then hits a Perfect Plex on Hogan, but Hogan hulks up and then chucks Perfect out of the ring. Hogan then grabs a big sign which says Hulkamania will live forever and then he does his post-match poses and celebration. I'm slightly concerned that the Perfect Wrestler decides to try a pinfall manoeuvre in the middle of the Royal Rumble. That worried me. (laughs) <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah but what you've misunderstood about the perfect character is that he thinks he's perfect but isn't actually so. perfect yeah but other than that i like the finish it was good yeah mr perfect was was great in this and, and some of some of the stuff on the commentary i, I thought was quite interesting like the, you know they, they're saying oh, well, why is he going for this or what you know why is he going for the perfect flex and you know jesse was then saying you know to wear him down and i was thinking well yeah, that makes total sense. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, Mr. Perfect was great, and yeah, you know the the Hogan win was um was good. I mean, like, like I said, I mean I, I personally would have preferred uh, a, a different a different winner. I think it would have been better if Orion won. But that image of uh, Hogan with the sign and the Hulkamania is forever sign, I actually remember being quite a uh, quite a famous image that that stuck with me for a, for a couple of years. Actually, like I remember they used that in the video package for uh, Vince McMahon versus Hogan at. Uh, Mania 19 in the street fight. So I, I remember that image quite vividly. Like I said, I, I would have chosen a different winner, but overall it was good. We said, I think the reason Hogan won is because he turned around and said, if you want me to put the Warrior over clean at WrestleMania, then I've got to win the Rumble. But I don't think there's any point in him winning the Rumble. Hogan's the biggest star. He's the world champion. He's already the number one in every respect. There's no necessity for him to be the winner of the Royal Rumble as well. And there are a number of people, for example, Rick Rude could have done with the win here, given mm. that he's had the feud with the Warrior the previous year for the Intercontinental title. And as we said, James, he lost that belt back at the SummerSlam, the SummerSlam that year. And now, and when they, when Warrior becomes champion, his first big opponent on a pay-per-view is Rude, but Rude is not at the level he needs to be by that point, as we discussed in our SummerSlam 90 episode last year. So Rude could really do with a win. And you've got Rude and Perfect two on one against Hogan. So you, you've got an out here. You don't need, you know, and they could have even made it three on one. They could have had the Barbarian, Rick Rude and Mr. Perfect all triple teaming Hogan, which could have been a good enough excuse to get Hogan out and, and have either, uh, you have Rick Rude win. But it's difficult to argue because obviously they then went and did WrestleMania six, which drew massive, massive crowds and also drew a massive pay-per-view buy rate. So you know, the, uh, we're quibbling over nothing, really. Hogan or Warrior were going to win. And I think, as you say, given the Warrior was going to win the title, then Hogan decided he needed to win this. Yeah, I think so. It, it's like the iconography, as Matt mentioned, is really important to WWE history. But I think that's all it is. I think at the time, you know, especially the fact with the with WrestleMania coming up and you're if you're building towards a babyface versus babyface championship, whoever wins that match needs someone to wrestle who is a threat to the championship. It doesn't have to be a big threat, but it needs to be a threat to the championship, especially at SummerSlam. Like the first challenger to the world title doesn't have to be that big. You know, it's the second challenger, especially in WWF, 
that's the one people believe will take the title. The first challenge is kind of inconsequential. The second challenge is the important one. So that brings us to the end of the rumble itself. What we'll do is we'll take a break. We've gone, God, nearly two hours already. So we'll take a break there. And then we'll come back and do the rest of the show probably in 20 minutes and it will be all the balance will be all to fuck. But who cares? Um, so, yeah, we'll just take a quick break and then we'll be back in a second. The random drawing has taken place for the Royal Rumble with me at this time, the bodyguard Virgil, along with million dollar man Ted DiBiase. The way you pick the number is the way you enter the Royal Rumble this afternoon. Now, last year, allegedly, Ted DiBiase, you drew number 30, which would be advantageous. Allegedly, allegedly, no. Last year, little man, I drew number 30. Well, some suspected there might have been a little chicanery, but certainly that wouldn't happen this year with all the added security of World Wrestling Federation President Jack Tunney. You're not going to be buying Security? Security. Security? You call that security? I call it downright Gestapoism. I didn't even have the opportunity to draw my own number. Wait a minute, Ted DiBiase. You asked Virgil to draw the number. I didn't ask Virgil to draw the number. Of course you did. Virgil, did did I ask you to draw the number? Tell him. No, shut up. Don't say anything. You made a mistake. I I can't believe this. Wait a minute. What number did you draw? It's none of your business what number I drew. Wait a minute. We're going to find out sooner or later. Where's the number? Where is? There it is. Take a look. Oh, you couldn't have gotten a worse draw. This is number one, the worst number of the lot. Let me tell you something, little man. It doesn't matter whether I draw number one, number two, or number 30. What it means is I'll be the first man in the ring. I'll be the last man in the ring. And it's a golden opportunity for me to show all you nine to five nickel and dimers out there that I'm the greatest wrestling talent of the world. I'll be there to the end and I'll win it. Things are heating up here at the Royal Rumble. Let's go back inside to that Mickey Mouse, Jesse Ventura, and you, Tony. Okay, then. Welcome back. So we've got the undercard, I guess, to cover. And we begin with Vince and lots of Vince, where he lists (laughs) off the participants of the Royal Rumble in in the way that only he can. He lists every single one of the wrestlers, and he does it in that very excitable voice that he does. And you'll have heard it at the beginning of the episode, because that's what I'll put at the beginning of the episode. But did we enjoy this? It's full-on Vince-gasm, isn't it, for about five minutes? Yeah, brilliant. So then we get the commentary duo of Tony Schiavone and Jesse Ventura welcoming us to the show. Ventura has got Mickey Mouse ears on for some reason and a Mickey Mouse jumper. I mean, I know we're in Orlando, but he's taking it to heart. He then also passes Tony Schiavone a goofy hat, but Schiavone is not at all interested in wearing it, which is a shame because that would have been. And I think this is maybe the difference why Schiavone didn't last and Ventura did. Because Ventura was willing to make a tit of himself and Chivoli was not willing to do so. I remember somebody did a documentary on Gordon Soli and Vince wanted Gordon Soli to defect from Atlanta Wrestling uh, to go to WWE. And he put the phone down and turned to his son and lit up a cigarette and went, I ain't wearing a fucking tuxedo. And that's it. <laughs> Okay, I'm not sure the tuxedo is the problem here. I think the, uh, <laughs> the Mickey Mouse ears and the goofy hat are the bigger issue. Yes, but I, th- I think the tradition of the Southern wrestling commentator lived strong in Tony Schiavone. Saying it wasn't a toga, it could be worse. True. That's very true. Um, or way lightly, really. Now, talking of Schiavone, I, I, I think I, I want to say this because we, we, we did the RAW episode last year. We did say it, we did touch on this, but I really think that Schiavone has massively benefited from the long break that he had 
following WCW's demise to where we are now. You compare his general demeanor in comparison to other wrestling people and commentators who were part of the business and had been part of the business during that intervening period he is so much less jaded than nearly anybody else from the period <laughs> and i think he's just it's just been a massively important thing for him to not be a wrestling commentator or any part of wrestling for such a long time to the point where now he's come back over the last couple of years and he just enjoys it I th- yeah i think that's i think that's it it's just like he genuinely enjoys the people he hangs out with genuinely enjoys their company he enjoys the job mm. and like if you listen to him commentate in the last few years of wcw there's quite a path that he's not enjoying it yeah especially the last couple of years of wcw which were atrocious mm. so he's he's kind of just trying to fake smile his way through things i get the feeling this probably wasn't his cup of tea as far as wrestling content was concerned either but He's different, and he's and he's because he's because he's so much more relaxed and not over the top like Vince or Gorilla. Even I think that's what makes this very listenable. Yeah, he's, he's definitely reinvigorated for today. Absolutely. So our first match of the night it's the Fabulous Rougeos against the Bushwhackers. They go at it in a thirteen and a half minute match. Way too long for these two teams to be wrestling <laughs> one another. Um, the end comes when Bushwhackers hit a battering ram from behind on Jack, and he is pinned. Yeah, let's start with you, Matt. Your thoughts on this tag team encounter? How long did you say it was? Thirteen minutes. Thirteen and a half. It it, it literally felt like thirty minutes. It was just. And I can I can easily go back and think that probably 29 of those imaginary 30 minutes were just the bushwhackers doing their you know doing their arms and doing their shtick for I hate it. <laughs> I'll be honest there was just so much of that but at the same time it was so over with the crowd and I can just imagine Vince before the show pulling them aside and saying hey make sure you, you know you do your arms you know, up and down up and down. <laughs> I can easily, I can easily see that, and that's exactly what they did, and it, it got over. So regardless of whether or not I liked it, it worked for the crowd that was there, and that's what is. I actually like this, and you're going to hate me for it, um, <laughs> just because the Rougeos are such great dicks. They're such good at being awful people. A few years before this, they had a match in Puerto Rico, and you can find it on YouTube, and the Puerto Rican fans hated them so much. They just throw everything at they can at them whilst they're wrestling and it's like a pro this match is kind of like a proper old school territory opener match and that's why i like it because it's traditional wrestling in this big super presentation format it probably is a bit too long but that's what the bushwhackers did the bushwhackers even before they were the bushwhackers when they were sheep herders they they were ultra violent heel tag team which you'll have that find that hard to believe matt but this is true but most of their match was them presenting the New Zealand flag. Look how great New Zealand is. They made a living out of doing the least amount possible for the most amount of wages. And that I always brings a warmth to my heart that they're doing wrestling the right way. Because at this point, they weren't getting damaged in barbed wire cage matches all night. At least they were earning a living from doing something fairly harmless. This is one of the things that I had remembered about the show. Well, I remembered it when they came out to the ring and I thought, oh, God, I remember this. And in my mind, it was like 20 minutes long (laughs) and it was the most boring match ever. And then when I watched it, I was like, actually, it isn't all bad. Maybe it was just that I was ready for it to be awful and it ended up not being so awful. But I was like, you know, it's okay. It's it's okay. I don't don't dislike it. Um, I don't particularly like it. And I would 
say that they shouldn't be going 13 and a half minutes here should be seven minutes probably at most and you know in and out and you're right they spend about five minutes at the start of the match going nowhere near each other literally just you know waving their arms around and the Rougeurs doing some nice heel work where they're trying to wind the crowd up they also the Rougeurs do have one of the greatest entrance themes of all time um as the all-american boys but yeah it's it's opening match fodder it doesn't mean anything and even then and this is the the crazy thing the crowd are just going mad for it oh, yeah. they're just absolutely going mad for it all they love the fact that the bushwhackers are end up winning they they pop they pop ev- for everything the two teams do they're in it they are absolutely into this and they they're really well into it but yeah as somebody watching it what 31 years later 32 years later yeah not for me i'm afraid so backstage, you've got next up Gene Oakland with Ted DiBiase and Virgil. Um, o- Oakland refers to last year's shenanigans with the Rumble draw. Now, this was some good callback because the, for large parts of the previous year's Rumble, um, Ted DiBiase is trying to negotiate with a number of people, chiefly Slick and his twin towers, um, Big Boss Man and Akeem, to get himself the number 30 entrance. So they talk about that a little bit. Oakland says that this year they have had a, they've had security to the draw. They've had added security to the draw, which again, I liked. It was kind of like, you know, the natural progression. Last year, there was loads of shenanigans. This year, they've added some security. No problem, love that stuff. Um, DVOC says it's nothing short of Gestapoism, he calls it, the, <laughs> uh, the added security, and then reveals to Oakland that his number is number one. And uh, Oakland then tells us that, and Diviossi says he's still going to win. This was a nice piece of work, because you're right, it just kind of sets up some sports realism. WWF was always like, you know, nowadays Vince sees it as the natural kind of uh, competition for the NFL and for uh, NASCAR and for the NBA. And this is where you can see that that's, that's where he's heading with this, even though it seems so cartoony to be true. It didn't seem as realistic when you watch, say, WCW at the time and the way they dealt with their rulings and stuff. That seemed more realistic. This seems very cartoony, but I still like the fact that they're trying to get the sports realism a little bit across. Yeah, I, I quite like that. I, I felt the Ted flipped this around because it, it felt a little bit sort of goofy at first. And then he sort of changed it. He was like, right, it doesn't matter from number one. And I was like, oh, right. Okay. That, that caught my attention. I was like, oh, wow, OK. Um, and, and I thought that was a that was a really good promo by him. Yeah, I, I thought this was a really good promo by DBOC and by and I did really like the tie into the previous year. You know, the fact that they really talked about the fact that DBOC had effectively bought himself the 30 number, and then DBOC's reaction to that. And I just I thought this was really this is really decent. And I think this is where you know talking about the sports realism. I don't care if it's sports realism, but I do want it to make logical yeah. sense episode to episode and when i mean when i say episode i'm just talking about from one thing to the next then the last thing we saw the rumble was the previous year where there were shenanigans going on so i like that they've just addressed some of those things because you would like you just would it's like that's just naturally how this would happen in real life is someone would react to it and and try to to make it better this year around so then we get the Fink introducing the genius who performs a lovely poem for us. This is, of course, the genius being Randy Savage's brother, Lanny Poffo. And he then faces Brutus the Barber Beefcake in a match that goes for 11 minutes. And it ends when uh, Beefcake then gets a sleeper hold on, but there's no referee because before this, Beefcake had thrown the genius into the, uh, into the ref and the, and the ref had taken a tremendous bump bump out of the ring it's earl i believe as well earl heaven takes the bump 
Uh, so then Beefcake goes and gets the scissors to try and cut Genius's hair. Mr. Perfect comes out and attacks Beefcake, then hits a perfect plex, but the ref had seen it, calls for the bell and the double disqualification. And then we get a little bit of afterwards where Perfect hits Beefcake with a chair a couple of times and the referees come out to stop uh, Perfect and Genius from attacking Beefcake. James? There's this some Olympic-level stalling in this match, which I always appreciate. When I was younger and watching at the time, I just didn't get this at all. It's like, just get on with it. I want to watch the wrestling match. <laughs> but now I truly appreciate stalling for the true art form it can be. And you two have two master practitioners. I mean, Brutus can't wrestle, so he's got to do something. So uh, this was like just just pure joy to watch of them not touching each other for a good 10 minutes. Because the matches where you say 11 minutes long, it does seem yes. like about seven minutes of that is them just circling one another. For me, this is something that I wish I would have seen at the time to get more of an understanding and more of a feel for how people felt about Brutus. Because to me, the cutting the hay thing is such a heel thing to do. And correct me if I'm wrong, he was the babyface in this, yeah? Yes, yes, he was, yeah. I don't know. It, it just comes across as such a like a dick move. It's like, you know, when, when, when you're young a house party and you're trying to stay awake because you know your your friends have got a pair of scissors and they're going to cut your hair or shave your eyebrows or something like that it's just like why are people actively cheering him to do this it just does it doesn't make any sense to you i just felt that was a bit odd but apparently that's that's what the people wanted was for him to to, to cut some hair well, they yeah. didn't want him to wrestle, see? That's why. They, they were like, <laughs> the more he cuts hair, the less he has to wrestle. Uh, but I also think, actually, look, this is a time when the heels were the heels. Like, yeah. that's the thing for me, is that right now, and, and not just right now, let's, let's, not, let's not be silly and old, and old about this. Wrestling's been like this for at least 20 years. Heels are just not that heelish. No, they're not. They just aren't that hated most of the time. And... When you are in a position where all the heels are genuinely heels and all the fans respond to them as if they don't like them, anything you do to them then is a good thing, regardless of what it is, including cutting their hair. You know, there's no kind of half in, half out here. We know the hip the heel is. No one likes a smart ass. That's how it works. But then you say that nobody likes a smart ass. And to be honest, I tell you who the genius reminded me of, and I literally put this in brackets after his name, is Damien Sandow. I literally was, as soon as he started speaking and doing the Paul Poem thing, I was thinking, this is Dave, the Damien Sandow. This is probably what he based the gimmick on. And, and he was a baby face. So I was like, hmm, inter- interesting how it worked. But he wasn't there, was he? When he first came in, Sandow came in with the gimmick as a heel. He was eventually, though. And he, and he did kind of do some of this sort of smart ass. Not as such, I suppose. It was more when he was the, you know, the, the business acting double. But, you know, he was a baby face eventually. So, yeah, I, I get where you come from. Yeah, they changed his gimmick when he became a babyface and he wasn't he wasn't really the same. But you're right, he did base it on this. The thing I thought most about this match, and I remembered it from the fa- from the time I'd watched it, God, it must have been at least 12, 13 years ago, I watched it with Tom and uh, around his parents' house. And what we noticed was the number of ways in which Lanny Poffo enters and exits the ring. So yeah. usually what you get in WWF is every single wrestler has a signature way of coming into the ring. So Kevin Nash, for example, goes over the top rope. So does The Undertaker. Certain wrestlers go in, you know, they bend forward and go in through the second rope. Some of the women kneel down, almost like crouch right down and go through the first rope, whatever. The genius gets in the ring and gets out of the ring in every way possibly imaginable, including ways of never seen before. Like he slithers out of the ring at times, he jumps over the top rope, he slides under the bottom rope, he's, he's just 
literally any way you can imagine there's one bit you know when you most wrestlers what they do the 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 standard way is they walk with their side to the ropes and then they put their left leg over the second rope they duck down underneath it and then put their right foot over so genius goes to do that he puts his left leg over the the second rope but then leans back and sways under the ring (laughs) like that it's just brilliant it's just phenomenal um so yeah that was the main takeaway i got from this was just the innovation that the genius brought to getting in and out of the ring i thought he was great actually i thought he was brilliant in this just everything he did just i just found him really interesting to watch as far as big stage company is concerned if he'd been in a company with a junior heavyweight division and probably not been around his brother i think he would have been a much bigger star because he he is kind of like the quintessential heel character in many ways and he could go he could really wrestle and you know that's not what Vince needed what we need here is a mid-card heel that does some cool stuff that annoys people that's what we want and he could do that all day long but I think he could have been bigger if he'd been in a different company um and he was big stuff for his dad's promotion in, in Memphis uh not that that lasted very long but yeah. and it was just it was just all of it though it was like his mannerisms like yeah at a time you know he, he was kind of like prancing around the ring and his kind of facial expressions every, just everything about him i just thought was just really good i thought you know this guy will wind people up just from the way he's the way he looks the way he's like using his body i just thought he was he was great you did have some uh standard late 80s homophobia in this match yeah unfortunately but it goes with the territory i'm afraid yeah definitely yeah definitely agree with that Okay, so then next we get backstage, another backstage segment. This time, Sean Mooney's with Bobby Heenan, Rick Rude, Andre the Giant, and Haku. Hegan says that it's not every man for himself in the Royal Rumble later on. It's every family for itself. And then after Mooney asks what will happen if it comes down to two of the three of them, the discussion then begins about who's going to win and some dissension starts to creep in. So there's a suggestion here that maybe the Heenan family aren't all on the same page. I'm uh, in awe at the fact that Sean Mooney stood in front of Haku and you couldn't see Haku. So either Sean Mooney stood on a box or he's actually a quite large human being. And yeah, I expected him to be about five foot six. I never thought of Haku as tall, though. I don't expect, no, I, I kind of put Haku in the 5'10 kind of range, kind of a little above average size, but I didn't think Mooney would be 5'10. One thing I forgot to mention during the Genius Brutus Beefcake match, and I think it was very apt for this show, so I thought I would mention it, is that uh, when Beefcake get, goes and gets the scissors, um, this is a quote from Tony Schiavone. It's almost like he's talking about this very show. It's not whether you win or lose, but how you cut the hair. That that should be the tagline for this, this uh, podcast. <laughs> So match number three, this is the match that I was very much looking forward to watching again. It's Ronnie Garvin against Greg Valentine in a submission match that goes for 17 minutes. And it ends when Valentine submits ultimately to Garvin's reverse figure four is what it's called here. But obviously it's a Scorpion Deathlock slash Sharpshooter. But in this case is the reverse figure four. Uh, This is the match that I was looking forward to as well, because... This is the one that stuck out to me when I remember watching it the first time, partly for Greg Valentine's glorious mullet. I mean, it, it's it's a thing of beauty. Greg Valentine generally, I mean, you know, it's 17 minutes is a bit short for a Greg Valentine match. He doesn't really get warmed up until around about the 18, 19 minute mark. So I, I was I was hoping for a bit longer. I have not honestly seen too much of Rugged Ronnie Garvin, but the stuff I have seen, I've liked. And this match kind of summed it up. The only thing that I didn't like was the number of pinfalls in a match that doesn't 
have pinfalls. Once or twice, I don't mind, but there was just far too many in this. But up until that point, I love the story of the Hammer Jammer and uh, the Heartbreaker. That's a really cool story to tell, and it gives something a bit different for a submission match to play off of. Gavin and Valentine are old-school wrestlers, just keep hitting each other really, really hard. So it kind of like put me in the old Japan King's Row kind of thing, that it's my kind of thing. So yes, genuinely loved this match. I thought it was awesome. I had a love-hate relationship with this match. <laughs> now, the part of it that I loved... It was really hard hitting in many ways. This is an extreme example, but I'm going to make it anyway. In some ways, it reminded me of a, of a Walter match today. Some of the stuff, <laughs> that we, this is good. They were getting snug. It was, it was really entertaining. So, you know, a lot of the work was great. So 100% that part was awesome. Um, and there is um, a very quick, uh, quick aside that uh, Je- Jesse Ventura sort of said at the start of the match saying that this was an I quit match at the end. He then apparently had to correct himself, which that did make me chuckle. Um, but the part of it that I did hate was, again, you know, you just said it there, but the amount of pin attempts just became so stupid. Like, <laughs> I mean, the, the fact that, it, you know, it was Ronnie doing it as well, just if it was all Greg, I can understand that. He's the heel. He's stupid. Great. He's making mistakes. That's fine. I can live with that. But every time Ronnie was going for a pin, I was like, why are you doing it? You know, do you not know the rules of the match that you're in? It really distracted me and took me out. It, it would have been one thing if it was once or twice, but they just kept repeatedly doing it up until the end. And it really spoiled it for me, which up until then, I, I thought it was a fantastic match. So it, it was a shame that they had to result in, to do that to do it. Yeah, I think that does detract from the match. I think it's a shame that that happens because this is brutal for the time. This is uh, we watched a match last year, which was William Regal against Chris Benoit on a pay-per-view. And it was one of the most brutal things I've ever seen in WWE. It was absolutely brutal as you like. And it was so stark compared to everything else that it just really stood out to me. And because of the fact that at the time, WWE in 1990 were far less intense than they would be in 2006 or whatever it was when that happened. This stood out the same way. They're just brutal. They're just like absolutely chopping the shit out of one another on a WWF family show from January of 1990, which is just so strange that they that this is this is how they decided well, we're just gonna we're just gonna beat the crap into each other. I'm yeah you know, we're gonna hit each other as hard as we can when we do our chops. We're properly gonna be very snug. It's always stuck out to me. I remembered it from the the times I've watched it before. I really like it for that reason. It does detract from it the number of times they go for the pinfall. Ronnie Garvin goes for it like five times, and I think had it happened once at the beginning or yeah. once at the end. I could have lived with it like either they did it once at the beginning absentmindedly for, you know, and then realized, Oh, hang on, I can't do that. And then adjusted, or they did it once at the end because they were tired and they'd been worn down. Yeah. All of that would have been fine, but it just does it so many times. So that is a, that is a bit of a shame, but everything else I really liked the hammer jammer. And what's, what's, what's the other one called? I can't remember. The heartbreaker. The heartbreaker. That's it. Valentine's got the heartbreaker. and Garvin's got the hammer jammer. I liked all that stuff. Thought that was really cool. And the crowd did too. The crowd popped for this, which I I don't think either man was particularly over in WWF in general. Certainly not in not by 1990. I mean, Valentine had had his day in fairness. In sort of especially the early 80s, is a very big deal in WWF. But by this point, he wasn't really that over. Garvin 
it was never really over in WWF. They never really went for him. And at the start of this match, I think you hear that they're not that over. But as the match goes, they really get over. I think people are really <laughs> responding to just the brutality of the match. So, yeah, I really like it. I think it's a really good bit of work. As you said there, Matt, it is a shame. The pinfalls are, are a shame because if they weren't there, this would be excellent. Garvin wasn't there for much longer after this, was he? No, he he disappears very soon after this. Of course, he'd been NWA world champion mm. prior as well to this and was never really that big a star, even in even in the NWA. Like Even though he'd been world champion, it was only a kind of temporary thing. He hadn't held it for very long and uh, he wasn't that big a star. Certainly one of the lesser stars who held that belt. I think that was part of the deal of the NWA run that he had, the NWA title run that he had was like, we just want one shock win to show that anyone can beat Flair in the long run to make things more exciting. Because obviously when you've got a dominant heel champion, and I think, you know, they were looking for a journeyman wrestler who could just do it once. And that was it. You got a one world title run, that's your lot. And he got as much out of it as he could. And he parlayed it into a WWE run, even if he wasn't particularly over. He did, he did have a big match with the Iron Sheik in 93 in Puerto Rico, one of their big supercards, which was billed, obviously, as former NWA champion versus former WWF champion, which is hilarious. But, you know, <laughs> got to make money, ain't you, promoter? <laughs> kind of like having Vince Russo against Jack Swagger, former WWE <laughs> champion against former WWE champion or something. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> So next up, Gene Oakland is backstage again, this time with Mr. Perfect. Um, he says that he's, Mr. Perfect says that he's sick and tired of Beefcake putting people to sleep, then cutting people's hair. So back to your point, he very much sees Beefcake as a as a piece of shit here. Uh, he's then asked about the Rumble, and Perfect says he picked number 30 in the Rumble, and Perfect says that the Rumble will be absolutely perfect. Any thoughts on Perfect's little promo? He was right about Brutus. <laughs> it was kind of the perfect promo. Really? Not to overdo the perfectness, but it just was to the point. It was short, and I forgot how good a promo Hennig could be, especially when he was angry. And I think it, it sold the story quite well. Yeah, no, this was fine. It was pretty standard. Nothing nothing especially um, especially interesting, but it was, it was fine for what it was. We then next get a, a big talking segment. It's a brother love segment as well. So let me let me run through this, and then I'll hand it over to you to see what you thought. So first of all, Brother Love introduces the queen of the WWF, Sister Queen Sensational Sherry. That's what he calls her. Together, they describe Sapphire as the definition of a peasant. No class, no finesse and no beauty. Brother Love then introduces Sapphire, who comes out to the ring. Sherry and Brother Love then proceed to ask her a series of questions, but don't let her answer. Sherry asks Sapphire who she gets her clothes from and wants to know so that she can avoid the place where she gets those clothes from. Brother Love says that Sapphire is a common woman. Sherry says that Sapphire fell to curtsy when she got in the ring and isn't fit to breathe the same air as her. Eventually, Sapphire slaps Sherry. That brings out Randy Savage, who runs out and uh, goes to go after Sapphire. But then Dusty also comes out, makes a save. And then referees run in to stop them from having a fight. Brother Love then continues to run his mouth and Dusty gives him a slam and then holds him for Sapphire, who gives him a lovely slap in the face. James, your thoughts on this? This was, you forget that you could get so much heat out of so much simple stuff. Like you could not run that promo today and get any heat out of it at all because it's so unfeasible. But it was just a sign of the times. You could get so much out of so little. And it was still, 
I think they were probably still running on the tropes of what territory wrestling had been in the 60s and 70s and still getting good, making good money out of those ideas. I mean, Brother Love, Bruce Pritchard had been like the number two guy in UWF. So he'd learned under Bill Watts, he'd learned under Vince McMahon. He knew how to push the right buttons. But a lot of it is just age old industry stuff like this. Very simple ideas that get all the heat they needed. But I don't think you can do it in the same way today and get the same effect. I think there's another reason you couldn't do it today. And I think the visual is not great here. Oh, no, no. The visual's awful. A southern white preacher deriding a black lady. Yes, that's that, that's awful. Um, but, you know, as a, as a visual is concerned. But I think like the basic concept of just having a go at somebody's class, you can't really do that and expect to get anywhere with it. See, though, I felt this just needed this segment just needed to be about two minutes. You know, everything they did, they easily could have accomplished all that in about two minutes. <laughs> it's, it's one of the cliche things that, you know, they do in wrestling. And, and I get it where, you know, somebody will be talking to you for a long time. And then you've got to wait for your turn to respond back to them. And, you know, it just felt like they didn't let Sapphire get a word in. And I know that was the point. But she, for far too long, she just stood there and just took insult after insult after insult. Which is just like, if this was real life, you would have said something back or you would have retaliated by now. So I just felt it needed to be far shorter. I thought it was pretty dull, actually. I thought it was pretty dull. And I think... Also, it's a pay-per-view. I don't see the need for this. Like you've got endless television shows. They even did at the time. Not that they were kind of shows like Raw and SmackDown, but they had lots of kind of interview segments and Brother Love style segments and the Piper's Pit and all that kind of stuff. So this is this is this is your bread and butter for those shows. This kind of segment. So I don't think we need this on a pay-per-view. And I don't think. I also don't think it's the kind of thing that helps the crowd through a lengthy show either. I think it makes it harder because it isn't very interesting. It is also, I found it even forgetting perhaps the visual of it. I didn't think it was very pleasant anyway. No. You know, regardless of who these people are or what the wider context that you could put this I, in and make it feel worse. I just didn't think it was very pleasant. I think the Brother Love character is borderline a lot of the time uh i think the last angle they did with brother love in this run was the one where he clearly got a blind he got a blind man to walk and it was making fun of those type of preachers and they had a load of complaints and then he was taken off tv but it was kind of like he'd been pushing that boundary for quite some time and he found out where that line was and i think that's the thing here is it's like it's still unpleasant even though it works where does it become a turn off for your fans as opposed to something to make them watch? This segment brings us quite handily to this week's Tyrant Baxton of the Week. Sapphire, real name Juanita Wright, was by all accounts a wrestling superfan and as such was said to have genuine admiration for Dusty Rhodes, her on-screen friend. According to Sherry Martel, who spoke of her in a shoot interview, that admiration ran so deep that she legitimately broke down in tears when she was told of the company's decision to split the pair up. Tyrant Faxton of the Week There you That's go. <laughs> yeah, we do, we do some slightly maudlin Byron Faxons of the week, but I couldn't let an episode go without uh, the Byron Fax of the week, even in old man's absence. So there we go. I, I did bring back all the memories of that uh, Sapphire heel turn, which may have been the most heartbreaking of the early 90s heel turns. 
<laughs> so we covered that in some depth on the uh, SummerSlam 90 show that we did last year. So uh, if you if you haven't heard that one, go back and uh, take a listen. Yeah, I just, as I said, I thought that the, obviously the visual was bad, but it, it was also just, it felt unpleasant. And it felt unpleasant because this is a, I think Sapphire was already in her 50s by the time this this took place. Mm. She's in there with these two people who are much more ensconced within the WWF fabric as well so sapphire hasn't been around for very long she's you know relatively new character and it just felt like them unloading on somebody in a in perhaps perhaps they were playing their characters very well but it felt like they were taking far too much joy in the act uh vocally eviscerating her and it just felt um i don't know it just didn't didn't sit right with me at all the whole thing and um yeah wasn't great this i I feel it was it was possibly some of that because you know i've certainly read quite a lot of uh you know, sort of history between uh, Vince and Dusty over the years, and that th- that sounds like that potentially could have been. Perhaps it was a shot at him. It's a, it's a strange one in general. You know, Sapphire's connection with Dusty Rhodes here. Anyway, it feels like, and this is again not to insult Sapphire, but in that day to put an an older woman, a large older woman, with one of your supposed stars, it feels like Vince and Bruce Pritchard and anyone else who was involved in the running of WWE at the time were playing felt like they were playing a rib on Dusty in the first place, just putting Sapphire with him and then having them treat her this way. Now in fairness, she's very popular. The fans really liked her. Um and it worked quite well actually, I think, for Dusty. I mean Dusty's run is not a particularly memorable one, the one he has in WWF, because it's not particularly good. But if it was memorable, it's because really of his association with Sapphire, I think. In fact, Dusty doesn't last long in the company himself after Sapphire turns on him. So it amazes me in one sense. It's like Here's you've got one of the biggest stars in the industry, you know, who will do anything for you and can do anything for you. But you're still going to try and bury him because he was the booker for the other main competition for so long. When Vince hired him, he said to him, look, you don't have to worry about anybody else. You don't have to worry about booking. You don't have to. You can take a load off of your mind. You just come here and you wrestle. And then give him the polka dots. And it's like, you know, you want the guy to stay. You want the guy to earn money for you. So why not give him the best platform to do that? Who knows? So next, Jim Duggan is backstage and he uh, is interviewed by Sean Sean Mooney. And he cuts a standard Duggan promo. That's all I've written. (laughs) There's not much else to say, is there? He he did trip over. I can't remember the word he said, but like he he sort of said something that he kind of stuttered saying it. So he, he repeated it three times. I was like, oh, right. okay. I can't remember. I'll have to go back and check what the word was, but he did, did trip over his words. Um, anyway, he he is hyping up his coming match with the big boss man, which is next. Now, this is mercifully short at uh, just <laughs> six minutes in length and is won by Duggan by DQ when boss man hits Duggan with the nightstick and the referee sees it. As I said, it's, it's mercifully short. I wasn't that invested. And I haven't got a lot to say about it, but maybe one of you two have. I like the boss man's in Zagori. That was nice. Oh yeah, he did do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, it always amazes me watching Bossman because he's like he's not the kind of bloke you kind of like would say athleticism about, but he can do amazing things and did amazing things. And I, I just like that Enziguri and a few of the other bits and pieces he put together in the match. It's like he was a solid worker. It was it was all right. Duggan's lumpy and it's difficult to move around. And if he don't want to go somewhere, you're, he's not he's not going anywhere. So you kind of deal with that for a start, and then you manage to make it entertaining for what it was. And they're both kind of in a holding pattern because Duggan hasn't got anything to do and Bossman hasn't got anything to do. And so, yeah, 
<laughs> you know what? At the beginning of last year, the first three shows we did last year, um, IRS appeared in each one of them. Different yeah. incarnations of IRS, but it was IRS. He was Mike Rotunda in another show. Um, this year, the first three shows, Jim Duggan has appeared in each of the first three shows. He was, uh, and the, the we did the 2007 yeah. New yeah. Year's Revolution. And he was in that. He was actually wrestling on that show. Here he is in 1990, 17 years before that. And in the middle, we did WCW Sin, which is in 2001, and he's a referee in that one, but he is on that show as well. I think he had more moves in the New Year's Revolution card than he did in this match, to be honest <laughs> with you. But he was in the ring for about a minute as well. So <laughs> in, in that in that tag team tag team match that we saw him in. Jim Duggan, super worker. <laughs> Do you know, um you're right. The the match was mercifully short. I mean, for me the, the this sort of sums it up really. The the highlight of the whole thing was some of the back and forth between the and the, the commentators. One of them was saying, you know, why does Jim come out with a two by four? You know, why does Bossman come out with a nightstick? And I think it was Tony Schiavone who said that the two by four is his companion. <laughs> was the word and I was like, What? And it was either companion or friend or something like that. And I just I just thought that was such a bizarre thing, you know, to, to sort of say. I mean, of course he comes out. It's, it's his companion. It's what he does. And I was thinking, no, that just doesn't make any sense. But <laughs> And then they were saying, well, he comes out, you know, with a nice sick because he's a cop. And I was like, well, yeah, that's, that sounds logical. So I, I think that Tony Giovanni certainly lost points uh, <laughs> on that comment. Um, but yeah, the, the match itself was fine, and they, they did touch on the Enziguri as well. And yeah, like I said, there wasn't much to it. I I do agree with you, James, that Bossman is actually a de- very decent worker. There's something about somewhere. I think it's actually when he's in WCW for the whatever it is three four years that he's in WCW mm. between his two WWF runs. Somewhere in that he stops being a good worker. I don't know when it is, but somewhere in that he stops. And so his second second run he has in WWF from 98 onwards is just not, just a waste. But everything before that point, his first run's really good. And most of the stuff he does is really good. There's also some of his matches in WCW that we've even covered on the show. Yeah. Are actually really good. He's, he's, he is a very good worker at times. But somewhere when, in that run, he's just, it just stops. I think it's when he stops. I think it's when he turns heel. And he has to be less showy, basically. And that's a bit of a downfall of some people. Turning heel doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a bad wrestler. (laughs) But sometimes it works for your character if you're less athletic. And it's also the fact that working that style when you're that size, injuries kick in at a much younger age. Yeah. This is the proverbial big pair of bollocks slapping against one another, quite frankly. That's what this is. Like, <laughs> basically, there's, n- there's nothing going on. There's no coordination. It's just you know flopping all over the place. Nobody's <laughs> in control. It's all a bit fragile. You're a bit worried for them. But basically, they hold together and they provide six minutes of entertainment. <laughs> so um, before we get the Rumble match, which, of course, we've already covered in some depth, we get their pre-match comments from a selection of the people involved. We actually get comments from 22 different participants of the Rumbles. Only eight of them weren't part of this. We've got, uh, first of all, Jimmy Hart, Dino Bravo, Canadian Earthquake. Then we get Demolition, Bad News Brown, Dusty Rhodes, The Rockers, Hercules, Rick Martel, Tito Santana, Jimmy Snucker, Akeem and Slick. Ultimate Warrior. Warrior singles out Hogan during his little bit of promo. Then we get Randy Savage, The Powers of Pain, Mr. Fuji, Jake Roberts, Heart Foundation, Honky Tonk Man and Hulk Hogan. 
I really appreciate this. I think this is this is mm. great. They should do this now, I think. You know, they don't have to do it like in front of a little kind of backboard that is sort of almost like there to just cover themselves. They could do this anywhere. They could do it three, four days before the event and do it in a really plush studio if they want. But just get quick fire comments from all of the participants or loads of the participants anyway in the two Royal Rumbles prior to the matches so that you just get a feel for you know the fact that they're gunning for the win that they want to win this thing and that they you know it matters to them and on top of that obviously ultimate warrior himself singles out hogan as the most important opponent that he's going to face in the in the rumble which kind of is a sort of prelude to what happens in the match between them i I think for me that i mean apart from the rocker snafu which we talked about earlier (laughs) it does give everyone a chance to look like a star and, you know, it does feel like it makes it much more important. It makes it feel more like a proper sporting event that's worth winning. Even if the WWF title isn't on the line, it's still a, the most important single event of the calendar year for individual achievement. Yeah, that, that, that's all you need, you know, from for most of the guys is, or, or the girls. Even it's just 30 second, you know, sound bites. I want to win because, you know, that, that's all they need to do. And that's the type of thing we're, we're looking for. So, yeah, that, it, it worked quite well. Do you know why I think they don't do it now? I think they don't do it now because it means work for someone because they yeah. have to they have to script them out. And there's a lot of talking here. You know, there's like, you know, if you put it all together, there's a good four or five minutes of talking. And it's, if you put it as a body of text, it's a lot of text. Whereas back then they just said, right, get in front of the camera, deliver 30 seconds and fuck off. And that's that's what they all do. And they do it off the back of their own. Some of them are quite wooden. Some of them tripping over their words. Some of them don't make any sense, but it doesn't matter. They're just they're just chucking in their stuff. Whereas now someone have to script all this out, and it probably have to be signed off by Vince McMahon because it's, <laughs> it's the Royal Rumble after all. They're not just going to let any Tom Dick or Harry write the script for this. So Vince McMahon probably have to read it all, correct it all, give it to someone else. They'd probably have to write it all out again. It would just be an absolute nightmare. I think that's why they don't do it. Well, I mean, they do it in Japan now. After every show, there's a backstage segment. As soon as you finish your match, you go back and give comments. And Zack Saber Jr. is the absolute king of that from his fame for a couple of years ago he won a match by dodging a high a cross body and came back to say and said if you see somebody coming off a balcony just fucking move and that's the kind of promo you need without the swearing possibly because it's wwe i tell you what i'd like to see actually is um and it's something that AEW have done a lot of lately and i kind of think it's quite uh sort of mma style it's quite ufc style is they'll do the the the, the post-match sort of scrums media scrums I love that and just think it's such a great opportunity. And like, particularly when it comes to UFC, once I have watched an event, I will watch the the post-fight media scrums with the majority, if not all the fighters. Because a lot of the times you get the potentially setting up for the next sort of food, for, for lack of a better term. I mean, that's, you know, I know it's obviously legit in UFC, but that's pretty much what you would get is they'd set up for their next food. And there's no reason why that they can't do that in WWE now. I mean, though they kind of do it or they have been in the past with like your, your broad talks and talking smacks and that kind of thing. But you know, maybe they should do that on a, on a bigger level. Who knows? Uh, no, I mean, AEW, um, a lot of my colleagues at Steel Chair do those media scrums. They're, they're part of it. And they, they have said it is such a great tool for promoting everyone. You know, why don't people more do this more often? I'm, I'm actually not a fan of them in AEW. But the reason is, is because they play a different character in them than they do on television. And I just yeah. think that's stupid. Just, just be the person you are on screen and then we're fine. We've got no problem. I just don't understand why you would split... The world that you've created, the, the the canon you've created, why would you do that now? There's just no point. I mean, Ring of Honor used to do that, 
having had to interview Chris Daniels and him insisting on keeping kayfabe didn't tell me either just kind of like oh no my editor told me that was fair that was that was it my editor told me beforehand he's going to keep kayfabe through the entire interview and I had to rearrange my entire questions for him but we managed to get a fair bit of interview out of him which was really cool and he was a really genuinely nice bloke and uh, was a cool person to interview but it was just bizarre that in what was it 2017 he wanted the the ring of honor insisting because because uh, Adam Page was with them then and he did the same thing with one of our other writers and it was like this is weird because we we're kind of expecting for a wrestling magazine this was for Total Wrestling we were kind of expecting <laughs> to have like the full insider deal but there's ways and means of even in a kayfabe interview getting the information out of them that you can so we did but it just became a bit strange yeah and the thing for me is james that having their insider view might be great for your magazine but it ain't great for ring of honor so i just (laughs) i just don't want wrestlers to do it i don't see the point i mean i don't again i don't mind it so much if they're doing it out of the context of the universe that they are they're in so in those cases fine do the insider interview but you know, on an AEW show, don't fucking play a different. Don't be yourself. Like it, just no. Don't do that. It's rubbish. So that brings us to the end of the show. That we've covered every single part of it. So we're gonna um, give our kind of overall thoughts. And we didn't do, which we tried to do this year, but we forgot. We forgot this yeah. time to do match of the year and MVP during the course of the show. So we'll do it now as well. And ratings out of ten, of course. Let's start with yourself, Matt. Uh, what's your overall thoughts? I would. I would go with this. Sure, I go with a seven, maybe a six, actually. Sort of six or seven, split it in the difference, maybe. Can't do that. We've got to have six or seven. <laughs> <laughs> I've tried uh, this before. It don't work. I'll go with this. I'll go with a six then. It, it, it was fine. It, it, it wasn't. It wasn't an amazing show. Um, it, it wasn't necessarily a bad show. It was just perfectly fine. Is probably the best description I could use for for something there. You know, for a show that I've never seen before, I, I can't say I was bored, but I can't say I was overly jumping for joy <laughs> either. There, there, there were some good moments, and, and they, you know, during the Rumble, and the, you know, there were some good stuff. Um, you know, the the Greg Hammer Valentine match was great as well. But yeah, it's, it's something that you know, if you happen to be bored on a rainy day and you want to watch, you know, some classic Royal Rumbles, why not go for it? But, but I can't say that I think it's something that, that people should dig out and really go out of their way to see. Match of the night. Um, that, that, that there's, there's no other choice. I, I feel like I have to go with the Royal Rumble. Um, and in terms of the MVP of the night, um, I'm going to give that to who I'm calling the Iron Man, Ted DiBiase. Yeah, it had to be. I was expecting that, that name to come out. <laughs> I think this match, this match, this card was as good as I remembered it being. I think I probably had the classic wrestling issue at the time of enjoying it far too much because I had nothing to compare it against. It was my first like proper wrestling pay-per-view. So I, in context now, some 30 odd years later, I can say it was, as Matthew said, perfectly acceptable wrestling. And it was a perfectly acceptable way of the time. I try not to compare it with other things that were going on in the world at the time, because I know a lot about them now, because that's not really fair, because it was for the audience it was aimed at. And for them, they loved it. So I'm going to give it a seven because it did the job it was supposed to do, which was entertain those fans in Orlando, which it did exceptionally well, even though it might not be my kind of wrestling. The match of the night, the hammer and and rugged Ronnie is is my kind of deal. So I'm going to give them the match of the night. Uh, But again, I'm going to have to give it to Teddy DiBiase for his uh, million dollar performance in the Royal Rumble. 
So I'm going to go for six out of ten as well. I thought everything was perfectly decent. The match tonight for me is Greg Valentine versus Ron Garvin. I think that the the Rumble there's the the first six entrants is an excellent match. The first six entrants of the Rumble is it's just excellent. They get the heat on DiBiase, takes out Coco Beware, takes out Marty Jannetty, and then we get some big names come in. We get Roddy Piper and we get Jake Roberts and we get we get Randy Savage. Then when their bit's done, there's a bit of a lull then for about 15 entrants until you get to the Ultimate Warrior and the build towards his confrontation with Hulk Hogan, which is what this match is about. The Ultimate Warrior and Hulk Hogan having their coming together prior to WrestleMania 6 to start to hype up that match and get people excited about it. And they were and they will be because it's, you know, it, it's been they've both been well protected and they've just done this great, this great little confrontation. So those two bits are great, but the rest of it around it isn't so brilliant. I didn't think the ending was that great, to be honest. And as I said, I feel like Rick Rude could really have done with the win. And I think in the middle, there is just a bit of a lot. There's just, you know, they just fill up the ring as opposed to doing anything else in particular. One thing I did think, though, is this might be arguably the the Royal Rumble, I would suggest, with the most star power of all time. When you consider you've got Hogan and Warrior, who were humongously over and, and popular and massive stars at the time, but then you cut factor in Roddy Piper, who is one of the biggest stars of the 80s without shadow. Andre the Giant, one of the biggest stars of all time in pro wrestling, is in the match. On top of that, you've got Randy Savage, who was a major WrestleMania headlining star prior to this point. You've got Ted DiBiase, who was a massive star in WWE and had been a big star in the territories uh, prior to that. Jake Roberts had been a big star in Jim Crockett promotions. Dusty Rhodes is in the match. He's one of the biggest stars of the last 15, 20 years. I mean, you're talking about genuinely amongst them, number of the very biggest stars that the business had seen over the previous 15 years so i think it's, it's really quite big in terms of his star power i think so as well i think 92 is probably the equivalent but 92 has flair and he's a big wrestling star and wasn't necessarily the mainstream star let's say andre was or piper was even really mm. I think 92 is like the big wrestling match, Royal Rumble from this era, whereas 1990 is the big star power match from this era. Yeah, it's a big one. It's a it's a really big one. So I think from that perspective also, the, the Rumble is a decent effort, but there is that lull in the middle. And I think that the overall, is, it's a decent Rumble, but not a great Rumble. The rest of the undercard is pretty forgettable. But that Greg Hammer Valentine uh, Ronnie Garvin match is uh, it just stands out. It as I said, it very similar to that Benoit Regal match, which again was far more brutal than this. But just in terms of the what it was surrounded by, it really stood out. So mm. that was really fascinating. That brings us all bang up to date. We've done everything we need to do today. So all that's left for me to do is to first of all thank you, Matt, for joining us today. Anytime. Thank you very much. And James, thank you for your contributions as well. Thank you very much. We will be back again next week. But until then, take care.